on today's episode of Mile Higher. We are joined by a very special guest, my friend Eric Carter Landine from True Consequences Podcast. We're always talking about just how broken the system is. Felt very much like he had planned to swoop in right at the perfect moment. I mean, it has been a long journey for you and your mother and your family as a whole. But there were also little injuries here and there. And there were some injuries that we didn't know about until after Jacob died that he had had. Did she at any point start like accusing him or questioning him? Dee starts really stalking my mom. Most dangerous individuals make everybody else think that they're one way and then behind closed doors and when no one else is around they're completely different Mm -hmm. she's crazy she just attacked me i'm just defending myself and then they would laugh ha 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 i know how women are and then they'd leave Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to Mile Higher Podcast, episode 253. And today we are joined by a very special guest, my friend Eric Carter Landine from True Consequences Podcast. Hi, Kendall. Hi, Josh. What's up, man? It's good to be here. So happy to have you on the show, man. We're so pumped to have you. And you and I have known each other now about three years. Mm -hmm. And this is our first time meeting in person, which has been so lovely. You are just as wonderful in person as you are online and oh, on your stop. podcast. <laughs> you are. <laughs> um, I think that's a great thing about the internet, though, is that it really has allowed us to like connect with so many people we wouldn't have connected with otherwise, right? Mm-hmm. It just allows us to all of us reach out farther than you know, just in our local area. I don't know why that thought randomly came into my head, but I just true. think it's cool to that you know you can make online friendships now and then. When you do finally get to meet people in person, it's it's always a fun experience. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it doesn't feel like we've never met before. No, but. it feels like we've been friends for a long time. Yeah, it it does. So yeah, we're so excited to have him here today. Um, if you are not, familiar, I wish on better circumstances though. Yes, you know what I mean. Because obviously, we're not here to to do a a fun episode by any means. This is a very very serious and um very traumatic mm-hmm. event that that took place in your life and mm-hmm. um. The murder of your your younger brother and uh, first and foremost I'm, I'm i'm i feel extremely bad for you just you know i have a younger brother as well so i understand how hard that must have been yeah especially at such a young age and just mm-hmm. how impressionable you are at that age and i can't even imagine so i wish we were getting together on more you know um fun terms i guess but yeah this mm-hmm. is definitely a, a case that needs to be uh told far and wide because the in you know injustice in this case is absolutely mind-boggling mm-hmm. it's it is insane that there is no justice in your brother's case and no charges brought against the the person who did this to him so um yeah thank you for well, saying that yeah of course of course yeah especially now you know we've o- i've always felt like i've had somewhat of an understanding obviously i'm not in your shoes so i can't ever fully know what it's like but now that I have a child, I just have a whole new, you know, perspective. Yeah, perspective. It's a per- I mean, as a parent, right? There's that through. parental yeah. switch that gets turned on. And, and once you become a parent, you start realizing that the most, I mean, the most important thing in your life becomes your child. And to lose your child, 
period is is very very difficult but to lose your child to violence Mm -hmm. um is a whole other thing so yeah and with that being said we just want to you know preface this episode that we're going to be talking about a lot of very serious topics including Mm -hmm. child abuse domestic violence yeah full trigger warning here um Um, which that being said before we even jump into everything and and explain further i wanted to say i mean there's going to be several ways that you can help um you know we use the term active true crime consumer and taking an action and the biggest thing that we need in this case right now is funding for a pi and i wanted to just get that on the table before so that those of you who aren't comfortable or feel like you'll be triggered by listening to the episode um, can check out the gofundme and consider making a donation um eric was just telling me We'll get we'll get more into the mm-hmm. reasons why you want a PI and why that is so vital yeah. to the case at this point. And you know, you were kind of telling me that the baseline, what you think you'll need to get started with that, is around seventy five hundred dollars. Yeah, um, we wanted to go ahead and make that donation to you today. And then I encourage all of you guys to help as well because that won't be all that's needed. You never know how many hours are going to need to be put into it and how much it could truly be. And you know, Eric is an amazing person, and anything he doesn't use. I know you will put to use to to help other families. Yeah, my plan is anything that's above anything that's above and beyond what we need for PI, we're going to donate to another family who needs help in one way or another. Yeah, I have full confidence. And that being said, too, Eric, as I mentioned, has his own podcast called True Consequences, which focuses mainly on cases out of New Mexico. But yeah. you have kind of expanded beyond that. Can you tell us more about that and what it's been like working with other families and connecting with other, you know, victims in the space? I think that it's a a huge opportunity for true crime in general to move towards that direction of trying to advocate for justice and trying to help family members who are in the space who often become victimized by the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and so part of why I started the show was to help people in my family's shoes, to help them feel like they're not alone. Because yeah. it, it is something that happens when you're there, you just don't really know where to turn. You don't know who to talk to. You don't know who to trust, um, especially when you're being gaslit by the authorities. So the show really started as a love letter for Jacob to honor him and to help family members in my community who are fighting for justice. But there's such, you know, there's such a huge amount of families out there who who are going through this. And so I didn't want to limit it just to New Mexico because I wanted to be able to help other people. So I have a not so consistent series where if a family reaches out from somewhere else, we'll we'll put it on the podcast still and try to help them. That's great. And mm-hmm. I'm sure you've made a lot of good friendships that way and, and just connections with people who you can relate to and they can relate to you. Yeah, It's a club that nobody wants to be a part of, but yeah. uh, it's definitely nice to have that support, to have people around me who get it that I can bounce things off of or when I feel like giving up, which is a lot yeah. um, to have somebody to help kind of lift you up and remind you why you're doing it. Yeah, that's awesome. And his podcast is excellent. You guys, we will have all of his information linked below from, you know, how to check out his podcast and also keep track of him on social media and what Eric is up to It's as well as, you know, updates on the case. Um, are you planning to kind of put updates on the GoFundMe as well? Yeah, okay. we'll, we'll update it as we get, along in the process for sure okay we also have a petition uh it was made for the da originally but we had to change it to to be directed at the attorney general and so um there's a change.org petition really trying to put pressure on the authorities and on the prosecutors that are involved in the case to 
to make some movement, to make some progress here. It's been 36 years, so it's, yeah. it's past time. Yes. I mean, it has been a long journey for you and your mother and your family as a whole. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just, just a lot. And you have been so impressive to me, just how strong that you've been to talk about this over and over and over again. I know it cannot be easy, um, but your brother would be so proud of everything that you have done. Thank you. And, and I'm so proud of you, especially since, you know, when we first met, I mean, True Consequences was kind of like an idea, mm -hmm. but, you know, you've just done so much since then. So thank you. Yeah, of course. So let's go ahead and get into things here. And again, this this is going to be a heavy episode, but it's it's very important. And I think you guys are going to feel very fired up and hopefully take that action to make a donation or at the very least sign the petition. You guys, it takes seconds to do and it really does can make a big difference. We've seen it happen mm -hmm. before. Um, so please, please take that time. I think it's always do that. it's always good when you can bring numbers to the authorities, right? Yeah. Like that's that's what seems to really spur things into action most of the time. Because mm -hmm. a lot of times it's like if it's just a family, a few, you know, a few people, that's not enough. Which mm -hmm. is sad, but it's the truth. A lot of times it's just not enough support to overwhelm them to the point where they're like, okay, now we've got all this public pressure, so we need to do something. Otherwise, it's you know kind of a PR nightmare at that point. So I, I think it's really easy for family members to get ignored by prosecutors and investigators because you know we're often seen as emotional wild cards people who have other motives to try to get things to happen um and it's really not a fair characterization of family members that are fighting for justice and so you have to sometimes make it politically unpopular for prosecutors and people who are elected to ignore you and sometimes the only way to do that is to do things like this you know, to get mm -hmm. the story out there, because if everybody's aware of what's going on, they can't hide or ignore you because everybody's aware. So it is, yeah. it is a huge, huge help. It's all about pressure. Mm -hmm. It's all about pressure, which is unfortunately the way that it's set up. It seems to be yeah. that until enough people make noise, they'll ignore you, you know? So it's like about building an army behind, you know, you and your family and other families I think the other thing too I've kind of learned over the years is that just how important your elected officials are at the local level. Yeah. Like we always get wrapped up in the drama of the presidency mm -hmm. and and you know at the federal level, but really what impacts you the most is at the local level here right in your city, your county and making sure that when you go to vote that you're actually looking into who's running for DA, what's their track record, who you know, actually seeing what they're all about because a lot of times you you know you by default, you just end up with these, you know, sort of career politicians mm -hmm. who really don't care. It's in it, you know, that's just kind of a stepping stone to working their way up the the totem pole, so to speak. And and a lot of times, those are the most impactful people in your community are the ones that are you know prosecuting these criminal cases or or not prosecuting criminal cases for whatever reason. And and I think you know we'll get into this a little bit later, but just New Mexico as a whole, when you look at um, the rate at which they're they're prosecuting cases, especially uh, having to do with child abuse and things like that, it's it's actually quite alarming mm -hmm. at the amount of cases that literally are going nowhere and the lack of convictions that they're able to get, or or the crazy plea deals that we see where yeah, yeah. child killers are getting you know seven eight years. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. It is. It's I, it's mind blowing. I don't think the average person is really fully aware mm -hmm. of how bad it actually is. Yeah. Um, Eric actually interviewed 
two elector uh, candidates for DA. AG. Oh, for oh, attorney right. general. For attorney yeah. general, yes. Yeah, that, that must have been an interesting experience. It was, and it was a little bit selfish, right? Because I had a relationship with the outgoing attorney general with Jacob's case. Mm. And then these new guys came in and they were running for office. And I selfishly wanted to get them on the show. Yes, I wanted the listeners to know who they were, but it was more about me building that relationship and starting that connection yeah. before they were elected so that they wouldn't be surprised when I show up. Yeah. With an army of people right. saying, like, hey, what's going guy? on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And you kind of get the advert. That's that's smart, though, on your part to kind of give them some information up front mm -hmm. and kind of build that relationship so that it's not this like shock factor. And they're just like, oh, get away. You know, I don't want I don't want to deal with that. So yeah. fighting, fighting for justice is like the most epic game of chess I've ever played. I'm always planning like four or five moves ahead. Yeah. Um, and I have contingencies for everything just in case, you know, so I'm always trying to think ahead of time and and trying to make a move in advance to make things happen. Yeah, that's wild. It's wild that you even have that it has to be that way, mm -hmm. right? Like it just should be this should be the most simple, mm -hmm. you know, straightforward process out there. But it, it's not at all. It isn't, which is I mean, we talk about this all the time. You know, it's almost like beating a dead horse at this point, but it's like we're always talking about just how broken the system is from and from the very beginning of the investigation to just the responding officer to to the scene mm -hmm. and how they process it and gather information is so critical to the end result. And a lot of times it's just it's botched from the very beginning. And I mean, as you know, through case after case after case, it's it's alarming. Yeah, like. I feel like we rarely come across a case where like, wow, they did a great job from start to finish. You know, yeah. kudos to the, to the police and, and to it law does enforcement. Happen, but it it's, does. It's they, so it rare. does. But, mm -hmm. but it's also, you know, disproportionately one way or the other. I mean, there's so many prejudices and all these other things involved with it that it's like, it's just not, it's not fair. It's mm -hmm. not this fair and equal justice system that it's advertised as. And I've even stopped calling it a justice system. I start calling it a legal system because it is a legal system. Mm. It's not really a justice system. Um, at least in my my experience and in my opinion, you know, we're we're going through the legal system. We're not really going through the justice system. I really like that. That makes mm -hmm. so much more sense mm -hmm. because, I mean, how rare is it to actually get justice these days? Yeah, and then you have to talk about what justice is. What does yeah. that even mean? Yeah, right. is justice ever even a thing? Does right. it ever happen? Because we're never going to get Jacob back, yeah. right? And that's the yeah, that's the only thing that would ultimately matter at the right. end of the day so it's like mm -hmm. even if the person is charged and put in prison does that equal justice at the end of the day i mean is that i think there's a consequence to every action right and i think mm -hmm. that's an important part of it but I, I agree with you i don't know if you can say that's justice and i think for me you know the reason i want to see the person responsible for jacob's death in jail is yeah of course i want him to pay for what he did but more than anything else i don't want anybody else to have to go through what my family went through and i don't think that he's changed at all we could do a whole podcast episode just on you know yeah the criminal justice system and yeah. process and everything mm -hmm. i mean there's yeah. so many things that need fixed mm -hmm. i mean i think the whole system needs to be reworked completely from the I ground agree. up and, yeah that's an understatement but anyways, we, let's dive into yeah. what really matters here today, and that is discussing your brother Jacob's case. So to begin here, a little background. Jacob Jeremiah Landine was born July 1st, 1986 in Edinburgh, Texas, to parents Brenda and Jean Landine. 
He has a brother five years older than him who is sitting right here, Eric, who loved and still loves Jacob dearly. And, you know, that love is what's really driven, you know, your your fight here. Yeah. So let's start out by talking a little bit about what you do remember about Jacob's very short life. And obviously you were very young at that time. So your memories, I'm sure, are still a little hard to pull. But what do you remember? I actually have quite a bit of memory or quite a lot of memories of Jacob. And um, that's thanks to my mom. Mm. When Jacob died, my mom, as you can imagine, it was really difficult for me emotionally. I that was my first experience with death was my brother's murder. And so um, I, I was depressed and I was, I was grieving. I was grieving my brother. And I would go into these depressive episodes where I would shut down. And my mom started to tell me this kind of thing over and over again. And it really stuck with me. She said, whenever you feel like that, whenever you feel sad, whenever you feel like everything's falling apart, remember the happy times. Remember the good times. Remember his laugh. Think about the way he was. Think about the things that made you happy about him. And so I'm so grateful to her for that because because of that, I've kept his memory alive because I still do that. Whenever I get sad, whenever I miss him, I remember those good times. And so I have a really really strong memory of Jacob, which makes me really happy. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. I prayed for Jacob. He, he was my little miracle. Um, My family was very religious and I was somewhat lonely as an only child. And I remember telling my mom that I was praying for a brother and I didn't know that my parents were having a, a hard time and that probably wasn't the best, uh, best thing. But, you know, I was a kid and and I was only thinking of myself. <laughs> totally. so, yeah. so I prayed for him. And the day I found out my mom was pregnant was a pretty big day. I was riding my bike with training wheels and my dad decided he was going to take them off. That day we were at the park and uh, I rode the bike for the first time without my training wheels. And then I crashed into a bush. And <laughs> uh, as I was crying and, you know, dealing with my scraped knee and everything, my dad and mom knelt down beside me and told me that she was pregnant. And, oh, really? Yeah. And then I stopped crying and I started running around the park and screaming like a maniac and jumping up and down. And I was so happy. And it was... How old were you? I was... I think I was going to turn five. I, I might have been four at the time. <clears throat> so old enough to really understand what it would mean to get mm-hmm. a sibling. Mm-hmm. And I had been praying for him. So yeah. um, Jacob was born and he was, he was a big baby. He was 10 pounds when he was born. Dang. He was big. Wow. And uh, yeah, he was, he was a good kid. He had a lot of energy. He was very, uh, my mom calls him a daredevil. He was very fearless, it seemed like. Yeah, it really sounds like it. Mm-hmm. He was a great, he was with us for a short time, but he made a huge impact in our family. That's amazing. And going back a little bit here, your mom had already lost a baby before you were even born. Um, Your brother, Randy, in 1978, Mm -hmm. he passed. And then you were born in 1980. Um, So Jacob was born, um, what? 
86. 86. Okay. Okay. So, and you mentioned that your parents were going through a difficult time. Mm-hmm. At, do you want to explain that a little more? Yeah. My dad was a Pentecostal evangelist. And if you don't know about that, it's pretty intense. Um, he would travel around mostly Texas preaching, trying to save people. <clears throat> would he do like the uh, tent revivals and stuff? Big tent revivals. Yeah. 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 That was my dad, and it's, you know, very much the, you know, praying for people to be healed and, and yeah. that kind of stuff. So um, so that he, was a big part of your childhood then, was was religion and God. and It was a huge part, and I was kind of, my family put all this pressure on me to become the next, you know, version of my dad out mm. there saving the world. Um, But my dad was really focused on his career. He was really focused on evangelizing and he wasn't so focused on having a family and being a dad and being Mm -hmm. a husband. So he would leave for weeks at a time. My mom had two young children at home. Um, She wasn't working. So he would not be there. This was before Venmo, before money could easily be moved back and forth from places. And so we would often not have food or really any kind of emotional support from my dad, uh, let alone financial support. So my mom was really struggling with that. And then she learned that he was um, having a connection with another woman. It wasn't physical. It was more of an emotional connection, but that was, that was it for my mom. She, she wanted to go back home to New Mexico to be with her family because she could at least work and have people to watch the kids for her. Yeah. So it it was a really difficult time, I think. You know, Jacob was maybe a month or two when she left, and everything just changed in, like, one night. Yeah, that's a big change, too, mm-hmm. to completely, you know, uproot your family. And, move. and obviously she was moving back home to be closer to loved ones and have more support there. But still, I mean, that's a two, you know have two kids with this individual and then completely just leave all that behind. I mean, it must've been really hard. Yeah. It took her a long time to get to that point. Really. I think that the emotional affair was like the last straw for her because she put up with a lot for a long time. Yeah. And mom is incredibly strong and I just, I love Eric's mom. She is so sweet. She's, she knitted Holly a baby blanket and it is the most, it is a masterpiece. This yeah. thing It's the coolest blanket I've ever seen. I won't even let her have it yet. Cause I like, I want it to stay intact, but everything that your mom has been through and for her to still carry such a, a joy about her and mm-hmm. be such a great energy is, is really impressive and commendable. Um, and I just wanted to say before we even get into this, that, you know, we're not going to tolerate any, judgment and unhelpful comments from people out there because obviously the majority of you are wonderful but there's always those people who are judgmental and you know try to put themselves in someone's shoes and say what you would have done and it's just it's so unhelpful and obviously hindsight is 2020 and you know saying those things like i said it's just extremely unhelpful and um it's frankly just mean so I'd like to put that out there that um, Brenda could easily read our comments or I'm sure she limits to some degree, but being on the internet isn't easy. And, you know, I've thought I've been trying to think even more about that lately, what it would be like 
to be in the shoes of the people that I've worked with and to have people hear your family stories, some of the most deepest, vulnerable parts of your life and judge them. Mm-hmm. And I, I really can't even imagine what that would be like for people to be talking about my family or my mother. I mean, people don't even know who my parents are. And I think it's really brave that you and your mom have been so open. Obviously, there's a bigger fight there and a reason for that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we're just not going to tolerate that, guys. So please, please remain uh, respectful and encouraging. That's that's really important to thank you to put those positive thoughts out there. Of course. So you guys moved to Socorro, New Mexico, mm-hmm. to stay with your grandparents initially. Yeah. Um, Merlinda and Dalton Crawford. What What do you remember about kind of changing from Texas to New Mexico? Did you like it? Were there things you didn't like? Um. Hmm. I don't really remember a lot about that in particular. I mean, I was born in Socorro and I had lived there until I was about three. So I was more familiar with New Mexico than I was with Texas. Uh, I also had juvenile asthma, which was triggered by humidity. So getting out of Texas and going to New Mexico was probably better for my health than than being there. Um, So I remember being able to breathe a little bit better. That was nice. Um, I remember just really being sad about my parents' marriage ending and not really understanding why or really having a hard time not taking it personally or feeling responsible for their separation. Uh, But it was good to be around my family and I was grateful to have my cousins and my grandparents and everybody there uh, because we were, I think we were uh, starved for that attention and affection that we would have gotten from my dad had he been there. Mm Mm-hmm. I want to talk a little bit more about Jacob before yeah. we start because he just sounded so funny. Yeah. You describe him as a daredevil. Yeah. And, you know, people think of a baby and how could they be a daredevil? But can you explain <laughs> why you say this? And Jacob was crazy. He uh, he was the opposite of me. So I was a very fearful child. I didn't like danger or scary things. You know, I would cry when my cousin would shoot lizards with a BB gun because I just didn't feel like it was right. Um, (laughs) and Jacob had no fear. He liked to do crazy things. One of his favorite things to do was we had this really old fashioned baby swing. Uh, it was a wind up one. Oh yeah. It was aluminum. It was sharp in parts, which was not great, but it was the eighties and and everything was dangerous. So changed a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But his favorite thing to do was as the swing would go forward, he would grab the front legs of the swing and pull the whole thing back and it would land on the ground. And the first time it happened, everybody freaked out. Like the whole room gasped and people ran over to make sure he was okay. And he just laid there laughing. He thought it was hilarious. (laughs) So we had to start putting it right against the wall so that he couldn't do that anymore, which he did not like. He would get mad. He would try to throw it back. It'd hit the wall. He'd start crying and uh, he would throw a huge fit. Another memory I have was one time I was in my room and I heard all this racket in the kitchen and I I didn't know what it was. So I went out there because I was trying to figure out what was going on. And I see Jacob and there's just silverware all on the floor. And he had pulled all of the drawers out of the kitchen cabinets. And so there was like (laughs) knives and forks and spoons everywhere. And he's just pushing things around. And I was like, Jacob, what are you doing? And he looked at me and he just started laughing he had this crazy <laughs> laugh. He sounded like Eddie Murphy. 
<laughs> I can picture it. Yeah, that. it was like <laughs> it was just really funny. That's so great. Yeah. He thought it was hilarious. He sounded so awesome. How old was he when he would pull the swing back? Oh god, yeah. he was like four months or three months old. Dang, yeah. he was yeah. strong. Yeah. Wow. He was big. He was a big boy. He, he was not little. Really smart too. Yeah. I feel like my smart. daughter could never figure out how to do something like that. <laughs> yeah, she's just figuring out how to like throw things around. Yeah, it's fun. <laughs> After you guys move back to New Mexico, you guys are kind of settling in and your mom, Brenda, mm-hmm. she gets a job at a grocery store. Is that right? Yeah. And can you kind of walk us through kind of the, I guess the main, I, I guess, I don't know if we should call them suspect or person of interest or what the correct term what is. What word do you them. like to use? I don't know if I can say that. what word do you use on podcasts i say my mom's uh ex-boyfriend at the time or boyfriend at the time do you ever refer to him as suspect or because he's never been named a suspect or a person of interest really um i i call him the person responsible person i like that Mm -hmm. that makes sense so can you explain to us why you don't put his name out there yeah uh, people think sometimes that it's because I don't want to be sued. Don't want to be sued by him. Uh, I honestly don't care about that. Like, try to sue me. Good luck. I don't have anything. Yeah. Uh, it's more because I was given advice from a friend who's a former po- prosecutor for New Mexico, and she said that sometimes defense attorneys can argue that naming a suspect in the public before they've been officially named by the police could create a problem where they won't be able to get their constitutional right of a speedy trial. Mm. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Yeah. And so I'm not afraid to name him. And sometimes I wish that I I could name him, Mm -hmm. but I don't want to do anything to jeopardize him being prosecuted. So I'm just erring on the side of caution. Sure. Which is, which is smart. I mean, because I was going to, I'm thinking, Depending on how, you know, what language you use around his name, you'd probably be fine as long as you're not calling him, a sus- you know, something that he's not officially yet. But at the same time, I, I totally understand where you're coming from. Yeah. Will you kind of just, so we're, we're going to refer to him as D because I believe that's mm-hmm. how you've referred to him in the past. Kind yeah. of on. I can't remember if it we, was D. Did we come up with that for a reason though? Or well, we... yeah, but we'll talk about it later. Oh, right. Okay. Like D bag. <laughs> now or I remember. Yeah, we, we had a reason. I do remember that. I now. figure there's got to be a, some name after D. Yeah. So. So did other so other podcasts refer to him as different names though? If you listen to different shows. Yeah. Some people call case. him John, or I saw Mister X out Mr. there. Mister X. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, for the sake of this episode today, we're going to be referring to this individual as D. Can you kind of just give us a brief summary of how, who, who this guy is, how did he come along, how he kind of reconnected with your mom when you guys moved back to New Mexico? Yeah, I think that sometimes people, going back to what you were saying earlier, you know, they make a judgment on this story based on an hour-long conversation that we have mm-hmm. uh, that is really a fraction of the whole story. Yeah. We can't possibly get all the years of everything into an episode, it would be forever. So um, I, I want to kind of level set here because I think sometimes people have this conception in their mind that domestic violence abusers or uh, even child abusers are strangers. They're people that take advantage of you 
and are lurking in the shadows, somebody that you don't know, you know, stranger danger from the 80s was a big thing. But really, when you look at statistics, it's a higher probability if you're in a domestic violence or child abuse situation that you are being abused by somebody you know, somebody you know very well, usually. And trust. And trust. And so I want to level set with this person for the audience so that they understand that this was not a stranger to my family. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> D was my dad's best friend. Uh, my dad went to seminary and his D's dad was a mentor to my dad. D's dad was a preacher. Okay. He had his own church. My family went to that church forever. Um, my mom grew up with him. They went to school together. They went to Sunday school together. They went to church together. His aunt is my godmother. His really? sister, wow. his sister married my mom's brother. So our families are very connected and it goes back a long time. So my mom has known this person her whole life. He's my dad's best friend. And the reason my mom found out about the emotional affair was because D told my mom. Oh, interesting. Because he found out from my dad. So he already knew my mom was coming back. He knew that that was happening. Uh, He knew that my parents had separated. He knew that there were problems. And so the way I see it, and I can't be 100% sure because I'm not in his mind and I don't know how he was thinking, but it felt very much like he had planned to swoop in right at the perfect moment. Interesting. Yeah, that's, wow. So he was almost perhaps orchestrating things a little bit and at least planting seeds where he, he wanted to and full well knowing that she was going to come, come back and be not in a great place and dealing with, yeah, dealing with all everything that was going on. And so he wanted to be that person for her is what you're saying. And he did. He, he swooped in and he started showering my mom with affection and attention and myself and Jacob and really just trying to kind of, insert himself into the situation. And there's a term for that, love bombing. Mm-hmm. And for those who aren't aware, can you explain a little bit more about why someone would love bomb? It's a disarming technique that people who are abusive sometimes use to try to get somebody who is in a vulnerable position to trust them. Mm-hmm. And it, it works. It's very disarming when you are starved for affection and attention and then somebody shows up and they're like the answer to that yeah. problem. It's hard to not let your guard down. So he was always willing to take my mom to work or to bring us dinner or to invite us somewhere, you know, take the kids and, and go have some fun so she could work or, or whatever. So he was constantly just showering us with gifts and affection and attention and for me right away i was like this is great (laughs) you know of course um he had a really fast car he liked to listen to music really loud um he liked to eat candy all the time so i was like this is great this is exactly what i need yeah right yeah yeah especially not having it sounds like much of that before from your actual father yeah and then also remembering you, your your mom has this history with him too of all these years of growing up together so it's it's even harder to discern the fact that he may be love bombing because of that fact that they have that history and on the outside 
if anybody knows this person, he is engaging and funny and friendly and kind and generous and happy. And so anybody who knows him would never suspect that he was capable of being anything other than that, because that's who he presented to the public. Those are, those are the most dangerous individuals, mm -hmm. the ones that make everybody else think that they're one way and then behind closed doors and when no one else is around, they're completely different. Mm -hmm. yeah. When was kind of the first, do you remember like the first time or, or moment where you're like, sums off with this guy like there's something it honestly what for me it wasn't until after jacob was dead oh wow yeah so you were completely just this guy's the greatest mm -hmm. farthest thing from your mind would be that he would be doing anything yeah wow and so eventually you guys actually moved in with him yeah and what was that like uh, at first it was okay um he was really pushing my mom to try to move in with him. He was really being very aggressive about it. Not in a mean way, but just he wouldn't let it go. And my mom kept saying, like, I'm good. You know, I'm here yeah. with my mom. She's taking care of the kids. My, my sisters are helping with the kids whenever my mom can't. Mm. Like, I'm good. But he was very adamant that he wanted, he wanted her to be with him. He wanted to take care of us. He wanted to help us. So uh, at some point, they start dating. And eventually, I guess it gets serious enough where my mom says, okay, you know, we'll move in. Was he financially supporting you guys? I think so. Um, not necessarily like paying bills or anything, but if my mom ever needed anything, he was there to give it to her or to help her. And he worked for the county, right? Yeah, he was a, a maintenance worker for the county. He had the keys to every building in the county. Oh, wow. wow. Which I bring that up because that, kind of comes in mm -hmm. as a factor later on so everything for a while is fairly normal there's nothing really out of the ordinary there's you know red flags aren't aren't coming up yet until your mom starts noticing injuries it sounds like on jacob mm -hmm. is that just like bruising or was it cuts or just what like obviously it was enough to make your mom start thinking like this is kind of odd it's not just Jacob roughhousing or, you know, being crazy and hurting himself necessarily. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think, um, the, the biggest one was, uh, a hematoma that he had on his head that had to be lanced and drained or uh, lanced and drained. It was just building up with fluid. And this was new too, correct. This wasn't a injury from correct. birth. This was new. Okay. That's really important to clarify. Yeah. He was about three months old, I think, or maybe four months old when that happened. Okay. Um, so that was the, the big first injury. There may have been some before that either I don't remember or weren't really noticed until later. But I remember Jacob was wearing a styrofoam helmet for a while. And he was really having a, some health issues. As a result, he was getting ear infections and he just wasn't feeling good. Um, and he was really healthy leading up to this. Very healthy. So it was confusing how that happened. Mm -hmm. And he had to spend a few days in the hospital as well, right? Yeah. That could not have been easy on your mom. No, and even the doctors said, you know, they, they were suspicious about what had happened. Yeah. And there were other incidents where Jacob would have a bruise or, you know, things would be in Jacob's crib. 
like sunflower seed shells or yeah. um, toilet paper. Um, th- those were the biggest things, I think. You know, the, the head injury was by far the most concerning, but there were also little injuries here and there. And there were some injuries that we didn't know about until after Jacob died that he had had. Wow. So can you explain more about the sunflower seeds? Because that is very peculiar. Yeah, it's kind of weird because all of this is very convoluted and I don't remember a lot of this, but the blame starts to kind of get shifted to me. Right. Um, Dee starts telling my grandmother and my mom that I'm jealous of Jacob, that he witnesses me hitting Jacob. My grandmother um, also says something along the lines of like, every time I walk by Jacob, I would like pinch him or hit him. Um, But Dee tells my mom that he left me alone with Jacob to, so he could take his kids to his ex-wife. And. And how old were you at the time? Five, six. He left you alone with a baby. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if that ever happened or not. This is just what he said. This is what he said. I don't remember being alone with Jacob and I don't think anybody reasonable would leave a six-year-old in charge mm-hmm. of a, a six-month-old or a five-month-old baby. Like, it just doesn't make any sense. And it seems like something that if it actually happened, you would have remembered that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he claims that Jacob was crying, which he wasn't feeling good, so it's possible, um, and that I took Jacob out of his crib. And I dropped Jacob on his head. So that that was the first story as to why Jacob had a subdural hematoma. Um, but the crib itself was taller than this desk here. Wow. Um, I was just going to say, how would you reach in there and get him out? The only way I would have been able to is if I would have brought a chair into, like, right alongside it. But even then, like, Jacob was big. Heavy, yeah. He was yeah. heavy. And I was not. I was little. I was very small. Um, and I was lucky if I weighed 40 pounds at that point, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Jacob was probably closer to 20 pounds by then. Mm. He was big. He was very chunky. And so I don't see that I would have the strength to even pick him up out of that crib. No. But let's just say, okay, maybe I did. I don't know. I don't know. It was weird. And then the story changed and I was accused of kicking Jacob in the head, which again, I don't think that I would have had the strength to fracture his skull. Yeah. At that age. Even if that did happen. Mm-hmm. The injury doesn't match. Mm-hmm. And, you know, is it possible I was jealous of Jacob? Sure. The kids are jealous of each other all the time. Certainly. I don't remember being jealous of him. I don't remember hitting him. I remember being mad because I thought his name was prettier than mine. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I remember. Yeah. But I don't remember hurting him. I was going to say, based on everything you've told us, it, all those things sound completely out of characteristic for you mm-hmm. to be like beating on your brother or pinching him, you know. Especially being so excited to be a big brother. Yeah, it just, it doesn't sound like you based on everything I've heard, but. Yeah, and I don't want to deny it flatly because I can't prove I mean, brothers get into it, yeah. It's it's possible that I was jealous, but I don't think it's possible that I fractured his skull. I just don't see that. Yeah, and yeah, of course it is possible. And siblings do physically fight, Mm -hmm. you know. I was kind of brutal on my little sister. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I mean, I have some memory of that. So I feel like it would be, obviously you can't rule it out, could have happened, but 
the injuries just do not line up with someone that age being able to do that. So do you remember an instance where Jacob was crying or maybe, you know, having a tantrum or something and D having to deal with it or like comfort Jacob? Like, did you ever see D comforting Jacob or like consoling him when he was crying? No. In fact, he would get mad a lot of, a lot of times where I I remember one time he had an ear infection. He wasn't feeling good at all. And, um, my mom had asked him to turn the radio down because Jacob was trying to sleep and he started screaming at my mom telling her that she was just like his ex-wife and he, Hmm. and then she went and tried to turn down the stereo and he told her that she's not allowed to touch his private property and just starts yelling at her. And then Jacob wakes up and starts crying. So he's just, he wasn't very nurturing at all. And I'm curious, I don't know if you want to go into this, but do you know why he only had visitation rights with his own children? Or do you know anything about how, what a parent he was to them? I don't know. Hmm. But I can tell you that when the injury started happening to Jacob, his wife called my dad. His ex-wife called my dad and told my dad to file child abuse charges against him. Wow. Okay. That says a lot right there. I just wanted to circle back to Jacob being in the hospital for the yeah. hematoma He was discharged on March 17, 1987. And like you said, he had to wear a foam helmet, obviously, Mm -hmm. to protect that head. What's what I found interesting, though, was that the hospital, like I think we might have mentioned this before, they were concerned about the head injury and they did contact CPS, correct? And there was a caseworker that that talked with your mom. Mm -hmm. Was there anything that ever came out of that or? So there was an investigation that started. I don't have any of the records of that. I don't know where it went went or anything. Okay. But I can tell you that a neighbor called as well and said that, that D was, I think she said beating up the baby or hurting the baby or something. And I don't know how she knew that. Like, I don't know if she heard something or if she saw something. Um, it was a trailer park. So I was just going to ask you that it was, they lived in a, a mobile home, mobile home. Park, okay. Yeah. And so I don't know how the neighbor saw or what she saw or what she's, you know, knows, but she called. And for me, that says a lot for somebody who's not even associated with us to call child protective services. Like for me to do that, I have to be pretty sure that something's happening before I'm going to do something like that. Yeah. So, um, but sh- so the child protective services or CYFD as we call them in New Mexico, showed up and D starts yelling at the agent who's investigating and chases her off the property. Oh, wow. And then nothing happens. Wow. No, no follow up, nothing, which I mean, that's another whole issue too, is just these, uh, investigations don't seem to go anywhere. Most of the time. Unfortunately, it's not the first time we've heard that. How I'm just trying to think, how much time do you think, like if you had to guesstimate, I don't know, in days, hours, during the time that Jacob was alive, that D was alone with Jacob and you? Mm. Probably hard. Yeah, I know that's a really hard question. That's really hard for me to, to know. Like and, a good, like would you say a good amount of time? Like yeah, where it'd be like, you know, hours and hours and hours per day, per week, or was it kind of just like once in a while? 
like I guess how often during the week were you with the alone would you say I would say whenever my mom was at work and he wasn't okay because did they it kind of sounds like they had different schedules kind of like he maybe worked at a different time than she did or she just worked late yeah he was shift he was like a nine to five Okay. Monday through Friday, and she was usually like a mid shift at the grocery store, like okay, like a ten to seven or okay. So potentially at least a few hours mm-hmm. at a time mm-hmm. before you guys would either go to your your grandparents or your mom would come home, right? So a decent amount of time. I just wanted to put that out there because yeah. I was wondering that myself. I'm like, how much time were you with him? Because I'm thinking the neighbors witnessing things. So mm-hmm. there's clearly. There's enough going on here over uh, this period of time during Jacob's life that potential abuse is happening. Yeah. Um, so I just want to put that out there. When when Jacob came home from the hospital, you had already kind of alluded to the set. He was very sick. I mean, a major brain injury like that's obviously in a baby, especially is going to be a, a major recovery and just the immune response that your body has. I mean, it, it can make you even sicker. Mm-hmm. Will you kind of tell us a little bit about how Jacob was physically, mentally coming home from the hospital and kind of how that plays into all of this. Yeah, so after he got back from the hospital, his personality did change. He became more fearful. Hmm. Um, shortly after he came back, my mom sent me to California to live with my dad because she wasn't sure what was going on, if I was actually hurting Jacob or... Um, if I was being scapegoated. So Mm -hmm. she decided to remove me from the situation to make it so that there was no doubt anymore. And the injuries to Jacob didn't stop. So for me, that's kind of what I lean on when I think about, was I responsible? Did I do something? Did I hurt Jacob bad enough to cause him to have to have um, a small surgery on on his head? And I say small surgery because it was just a lance to drain the fluid, it, it wasn't a small deal. It was a big deal, but it wasn't like, you know, brain surgery. So the injuries continue, but Jacob's personality also changes pretty dramatically. And one of the, the things that he loved to do was to be held up high. He liked to play Superman. He liked to pretend like he was flying. Um, that was one of his favorite things. And he would laugh and he enjoyed it. So my grandmother's watching him one day and she picks him up over her head and he starts crying and screaming and like clawing at her hair. My mom comes home from work and my grandmother says, I don't know what's going on with Jacob. Like he's not acting like himself. Um, And my mom says, well, what do you mean? And she's like, well, I tried to pick him up like I always do. And he freaked out. And so she shows my mom and he starts trying to like jump out of my grandma's arms into my mom's arms. And my mom decides, okay, well, I'm going to go talk to D and see what's going on. And she asked him, like, do you, are you playing rough with Jacob? What are you doing? Why, why is he acting like this? And D grabs Jacob and says, no, I just do this and picks him up over his head. And Jacob is almost trying to jump out of his arms. Wow. And he's screaming, crying, uh, totally afraid. And this is something at one point he He seemed to love. Yeah. So big, big red flag there Mm -hmm. babies are smarter than you think too i mean i know from our own experience like they may not be able to like talk and communicate to you but they communicate through their body language Mm -hmm. and through their face and their emotions and hearing that is very alarming i'm sure to 
to your mom like this is very weird like this is a major change why is he like trying to get away from d yeah um at this point and she did tell him like don't ever play with jacob like that again he doesn't like it stop doing that and at that point she decided to really limit how much contact he had with jacob alone and did everything she could even changing her schedule so that jacob had somebody in the family to watch him Mm -hmm. so most of the time that was your grandma my grandma and my aunts okay and your grandma's Merlinda, Merlinda. Is her name. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so how many aunts do you have? Um three. Three. Okay. So they were they all were in the area and able My to- family lives on like this compound. Oh, really? Like yeah, they own this huge plot of land and everybody has oh, their that's great. Yeah. That's really cool. So it was pretty limited at that point, or completely limited as far as Dee's time mm-hmm. with Jacob. Yeah. Smart. Your mom, those instincts kicked in right away. Mm-hmm. So when she confronts Dee about how he's playing with Jacob, are you already moved out and in California at this point? Yeah. So this is this is kind of a, a obviously a big moment for your mom where she's like, there's potentially a major issue here. Mm-hmm. And she's doing the, you know, parental thing of like, I gotta protect my child, so I need to, mm-hmm. you know, get my family member involved. So meanwhile, you probably you probably learned about this after the fact or did you did your mom tell you what was going on i mean probably not since you were so young yeah i learned about this in adulthood okay okay and going back here what was it like for you living in california at that time was that really hard being away from your mom and jacob it was it was it was confusing i didn't yeah. really understand what was going on um i definitely miss my mom and my brother I miss my kindergarten teacher. She was my favorite teacher that I ever had. And so, um, but I made new friends and I I liked the school that I went to, but I think I was mostly confused. I really didn't know what was going on. And how long were you there? It must've just been a few months. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Do you remember at any point in time when you were being watched by D, was there any sort of physical abuse or anything towards you or your brother that you saw or experienced? No, he would yell a lot and he would act like he was going to hit me. Like he would raise his hand at me, but he would never hit me. He didn't spank you or anything like mm-hmm. that. Did he discipline you at all? Not really. Not, oh. not then. Eventually he did. Did you ever like get on his nerves or anything? Did you ever make upset him? Oh yeah. Yeah. A lot. And he would just, just kind of yell. It sounds like he's very verbally abusive most of the time, just kind of yelling kind of out of control. He would yell and he would threaten me that he was going to hit me, but he never did. Mm. At least Mm. not then. So that wasn't something that happened early on. Early on he was. He was nice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Do you think. Like in hindsight, do you look at this and think he was like this from the very beginning? Like this was behavior that he had been doing for a long, long time. And it just was only a matter of time before it started coming out on, on your, your family. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. So definitely not just like this was the first time he kind of changed and things were, were going downhill. This is like a pattern Mm -hmm. that he's showing. Interesting. So this now brings us to april 9th 1987 
your mom had a morning shift at the grocery store that day and she brought Jacob over to your grandmother's house around 10 a.m. At this point, Jacob's doing, is he getting better? Like, is he starting to finally kind of recover from, from the hematoma? Yeah, I think he finally started eating and he was starting to be less fussy. Which is good. It's always scary when, you're, when your child or baby doesn't eat. So that, mm-hmm. That's always like a big sign of something's wrong. So everything was fairly normal or at least as normal um, as it could be given the circumstances. But that night, Merlinda wanted to go to church, but she didn't want to bring Jacob, right? So she called your mom. And what did she ask your mom? So even though Jacob was feeling better, he was still fussy. He still wasn't feeling 100%. And so she didn't want him to have to go to church and then she would have to take him out, yeah. you know, if he started crying. And so she called my mom and she said, hey, I really want to go to church tonight, but I don't want to bring Jacob. What do I do? My mom says, well, I don't know. Um, I'm getting off in an hour. I guess you can take him to D and I'll be there shortly. I think she said something along the lines of what's the worst that could happen in an hour. Yeah. And of course, in your mind, that seems reasonable. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that gives you some insight into where her mindset is. Yeah. Right. She doesn't want Jacob to be with him alone, mm-hmm. but she's trying to rationalize like, okay, I can, I can get through this it's hour. Not that long of a time. Like, I can be there. It'll be fine. Yeah. I'll be there before. She's before in a desperate situation. Mm-hmm. Doesn't have any other option. Yeah. She hangs up the phone and she gets this gut feeling that something bad is going to happen. And so she goes to her boss and she says, can I get off early? Can you just let me go home? I don't, I'm worried about my kid. I, I don't want to be here. He said, no, it's going to get busy. Um, so no, you can't leave. Just busy yourself. So she starts doing some busy work, trying to get herself to just not get that worry time to about it. it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And less than an hour into that, D comes running into the grocery store in a panic. And he tells my mom that Jacob is unconscious and not breathing. And at the same time, there's an ambulance driving by on the street and Jacob is rushed to the hospital. And she notices that ambulance. Mm-hmm. So this is the very first time your mom knows something's wrong. Mm-hmm. D coming into the grocery store. So, and we know for certain that that ambulance that went by was Jacob's ambulance. Yeah. So wow. he did not, call your mom at the time before the paramedics got there when things actually happened this is some time has passed since since that point yeah he just shows up and he's hysterical is he crying is he yelling is he just kind of freaking out he's freaking out he's not crying he is hysterical and he's freaking out probably looks scared Mm -hmm. and panicked and so what did he say happened so they go to the hospital and when they get there, they're told that Jacob's being airlifted to University of New Mexico in Albuquerque, which is 75 miles away. Um, the hospital in Socorro can't deal with the injuries that Jacob has. And so my mom and Dee and my grandparents all get in the car and they have to drive the 75 miles because nobody's allowed in the helicopter. It's just the rules. Um, so not even my mom was allowed to fly with him. He was just taken. Must have been excruciating for her. And the whole way there, Dee is 
telling my mom, I didn't do anything. You know, it was an accident. I promise you like nothing happened here. And he just kept maintaining his innocence and claiming that it was an accident. And, um, according to my mom, like he just kept going. He didn't really stop talking the entire time. Wow. Which red flag, right? Like, yeah. To Strange be, like, priorities. Like there. that's what you're worried about. Not, you know, why don't we pray for Jacob right now and hope he's okay. And, but no, making sure that your mom knows that he didn't do this. Mm-hmm. It's very, very weird to me. Did she at any point start like accusing him or questioning him? Uh, I think she just him told him to stop. She was like, stop. I don't want to hear it. Like, I don't yeah. care. I just need to get yeah. to my son. Okay. So he really had no reason to con- continually say that. It's mm-hmm. not like she was questioning him or already blaming him. Mm-hmm. He's just running his mouth mm-hmm. constantly trying to defend himself. Yeah. That says a lot, I think. So yeah, 75 miles, that's like a good hour, hour and a half or so. About an hour. Yeah, to get there. And it's just the two of them? And my grandparents. Oh, okay. Yeah. Wow. That must have been a wild car ride. So they get there and the doctors tell your family that Jacob is in a coma. And he has a massive cerebral fracture and a brain injury with possibly swelling of Mm -hmm. the brain as well. But this is where they found evidence of those previous injuries. Yeah. You want to speak to those? Yeah, they saw that Jacob had uh, a broken rib that was healing as well as the original skull fracture um, and some contusions and bruises on his body. But we didn't know that his rib had been broken. Mm. And so he that's probably why he was very fussy. Is he was in a lot of pain. Yeah. So did they... Did the hospital staff start to kind of question how are these injuries occurring? Yeah. Yeah. um, So the state police were called and child protective services were called immediately. Um, Jacob was rushed into surgery because his, his brain they thought was swelling and fluid was building up in his lungs. And this was actually even before my mom got there the doctor signed oh, the wow. authorization to do surgery without my mom present because it was, it was life-threatening it was life-threatening yeah. mm-hmm. um but immediately the state police get there and by this point jacob had died he didn't make it through the surgery um and my mom when she's told by the doctor that jacob was dead she freaks out runs away crying um d looks at the doctor and says this isn't going to look good for me. This looks really bad for me. I can't believe this is happening to me. Wow. I mean, that tells you so much right there. And the doctor thought it was so strange that he actually wrote it down in his notes. So it's actually part of the investigation file. You can see the doctor said, this guy seems more concerned with himself than with the baby or even consoling his girlfriend who just lost her baby. He just, he's like trying to make sure he makes it known to yeah. the doctors that this this doesn't look good for me because it shows i mean it shows his mindset that he's just thinking about himself mm-hmm. through this entire thing he's like mm-hmm. now jacob's dead so they're gonna think that i did it i did something and innocent people do not act that way so at this point obviously your mom's head has to just be spinning and i mean does she what has she told you about those moments for her it was the worst moment of her life Mm-hmm. It's just the worst case scenario, yeah. and I I honestly believe that moment ruined her life. I'm sure it did. 
I don't think I would ever recover from that pain and trauma. That's. I guess I should mention that everybody was pulled into separate interviews with police. Uh, they separated everybody. So my grandmother was interviewed by herself. My mom was interviewed by herself. Dee was interviewed by himself. Um, so they started investigating as a potential homicide immediately. Right away. Which okay. the investigating officer was Sue DeWalt from the state police. Mm -hmm. So she was doing the initial investigations and interviews at the time. Sounds like from about 10 p.m. to 1 in the morning, which Jacob passed at 3.35 a.m. Uh, during his operation yeah. on April 10th, 1987. And she's not only interviewing uh, your family members and D, she's also interviewing hospital staff, mm -hmm. social worker. Um, do you guys feel like she did a good job? I think she did. I think she... I think the initial investigation was handled well. Mm -hmm. um, I think that there are some other officers and detectives that didn't do as good of a job. Uh, but in the initial investigation, I think she really, it seems like she really had an idea of what was going on and had a grasp of the situation based on her notes. Mm -hmm. So how'd you find out then? Yeah. Do you remember? So, yeah. I remember being woken up by my dad. Um, we were living in a garage of a friend of a family and I think we had a bunk bed. So I was like on the top and my dad was on the bottom and he woke me up at like four or five in the morning and said we had to get on an airplane to Albuquerque. He said something happened to Jacob. He didn't tell me what it was. We got on the plane and we were met at the airport by my mom and my grandmother. And I believe Sue DeWalt was also there mm. and we were immediately taken into an interview. So as soon as we got off the plane, my dad and I were brought into an interview with uh, Sue DeWalt. At the airport? I don't or? know if we were at the airport or if we were taken to the state oh, police August. office. Okay. I don't really remember, but I know that she interviewed me. What do you remember about that interview? I remember being very scared. Mm -hmm. um, and Dee pulled you aside, didn't he? He pulled me aside and told me, he grabbed me by the shoulders and he said, don't lie, don't you dare lie. You know what happens to people who lie. Wow. Literally trying to scare you into silence. Because mm -hmm. obviously he knew that police are probably going to ask you about him. Yeah. And you might not have great things to say about him that yeah. could incriminate him. Wow. And at this point, did you know what had actually happened to Jacob? Yeah, I found out that Jacob died. And I think they told me in the car on the way to the interview. So it wasn't at the airport. Um, and I remember, I didn't really understand death at the time, but mm -hmm. I told my mom, I think that I was scared that I was going to go to jail. Oh, you did. I mean, I can understand that confusion as a kid. Mm -hmm. It's got to be so hard to wrap your mind around. Well, especially it. since he was like blaming you all the time mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. hurting him. Mm -hmm. So as a kid, you're probably like, oh my God, I'm in trouble. This is my fault or yeah. something. You know, you're not able to comprehend the situation at hand. The whole gravity so. of what right. has just happened. Oh. Or even understanding that I wasn't there. Like, right, how yeah. could I? I couldn't have been responsible for it, but. You must have thought, especially with all the interviews and stuff, like it must have felt very scary. It was. I'm sure it was. Because the police, they asked you if you were jealous of your brother, right? They asked me if I hit Jacob, if I hated Jacob, if I wanted to hurt Jacob. And they asked about D as well. 
if he ever hurt you or threatened you before. They asked him, they asked me if he hurt me or if he hit me. And I said, no, but he always acts like he's going to. The one thing that I did find kind of interesting, I don't know how much information you have around this, but investigators asked your mom if she thought D was capable of doing this to Jacob. And what was her answer? I don't think so. Hmm. Yeah. And she didn't, like I said, she knew this person. We, they grew up together. She didn't think he was capable of it. Yeah. I mean, she, she had some questions, you know, thoughts about him, but to think she, you know, he's capable of killing her child. It's Mm -hmm. really hard to wrap your mind around, especially so quickly. And I'm sure she's just reeling with emotion at this point, like confused and overwhelmed. And that would really be something that came back to haunt her answering it that way. Sure. Did Dee ever give like a clear, concise story on what happened? His story changed multiple times. I think at least four times. Um, <clears throat> so his first story, and I might get this wrong, so forgive me. One of his first stories was that he was dubbing cassettes. Um, that stays pretty consistent through his stories. So I think that might be true. What does that mean? <laughs> What's dubbing? <laughs> for, for people who are not in their 40s or older, um, back in the 80s, we listened to music on these little tapes, cassette tapes. Um, you know, there was no digital files. There was no MP3s. There I weren't even cassette. There weren't even CDs. We had we had cassette players, and so mm-hmm. the cool thing about it was you could easily pirate <laughs> pirate music. Oh. Um, if you had a dual deck, you could record from one tape to the other. Okay. Even okay. if it even if it was like, you know, Mariah Carey or something, you could still do it, and then like give it to a friend and be like, "Here you go." It was Here's like the mixtape. Copying CDs. Later it was like on. copying CDs. Burning CDs for yeah. people. Yeah. Yeah. Or like making a playlist on Spotify for yeah. the people that are <laughs> okay. in Gen Z. <laughs> um, I got it. But he he had this massive stereo that he was very proud of. It was a very expensive stereo. And in his one of his first stories, he said he was dubbing cassettes and Jacob was being fussy and he had Jacob in the walker. And he gave Jacob a couple of old cassettes to play with so that he could you know, distract yeah. himself while D was making this cassette for his brother. And he said Jacob continued to be fussy, so he got him out of the walker and set him on the couch by himself. And then turned around because the tape had clicked. And what that means is that it stopped recording from one side. And so you had to turn the tape around, turn the tape around to get the other side recorded. Um, so he said he turns around, he changes the tapes over, and he hears a loud crash, and then he hears Jacob crying. So he looks, and Jacob is lying on the ground, and he's got some yellow um, vomit around his mouth, and his eyes are rolling in the back of his head. So he, he claims that Jacob fell off the couch, hit his head on the coffee table, and that's how he had the injury, and that's what happened. Then um, somebody tells him that that's not how... Jacob was hurt because Jacob was, he suffered from blunt force trauma. And if he would have hit his head on the coffee table, that would have been sharp force trauma. Mm -hmm. Um, So he changes it and says, actually what I was doing was I was playing with Jacob and I was rubbing my beard on his legs. What? And holding him over my head. And he wiggled out of my hands and slammed his head into the armchair. Completely different story. Mm -hmm. And this was the second story. Second story. Okay. 
Um, and then there was a couple more. I don't really remember the details, but they're they're different. Very different mm-hmm. from those two. Were these given to police? Yes, they're documented in the, okay in the case file. All okay. four are. Mm-hmm. Wow. Was there uh, any report from like the paramedics or anything that that initially arrived at the scene to, when they got Jacob? Because they, because uh, an ambulance took him to one hospital, and then that's where the flight for life met them. Yeah, I didn't see any notes from. Or was he? Do is there any? Do we know where he was in 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 uh, D's place when they came in? Like, was he on the floor or? Um, he was D was holding him. He was holding him. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. interesting. But there's not a lot of documentation from the first responders, so I don't really know. Man, body cams would have been mm-hmm. great to have really back beautiful. then. So do you remember what this time was sort of like for you, like in the days following all of this happening? Do you remember like what your mom was going through or like what you started to feel emotionally? Yeah. Um, I remember the funeral. I remember being feeling like it was kind of like a bad dream. Like everything just seemed kind of ethereal, ethereal. Didn't seem really like it was really happening. Yeah. There were so many people there and so many people hugging us that I just felt really overwhelmed. And seeing Jacob in his tiny little casket, like, God. And having to say goodbye. I'm so sorry. Let's cut for a second. All right, guys, we're back. Just had to take a couple seconds there. Um, Obviously, this is um, very, very emotional and traumatizing for Eric to talk about this again and again. But um, we thank you so much for being vulnerable here. Um, So um, you'd asked me earlier when I started to suspect that something had happened, that Dee was responsible it actually wasn't until after Jacob had died, um, we went back to my grandparents' house. My mom wasn't really sure what to think. Mm-hmm. Um, as you can imagine, she had a lot of emotions going on, and it just was better for her to be away from him. Yeah. So we, we went to my grandparents' house, and uh, Dee starts really, I think stalking is probably the best way to put it. He starts stalking my mom. Um, he is writing letters to her. He's leaving them on her car. He's taking them to her job, to her boss to give to her. He's calling her at work. He's calling her at my grandparents' house. He's following her around town. He's trying to get her to talk to him. And she doesn't want to. She just really wants to be able to grieve and doesn't want to hear what he has to say. Um, he pulls up to my grandparents' house one day and my grandfather, I remember he jumped out of his chair, which was not something that he did. Like once he was in his chair, he's in the chair, he's in the chair for the rest of the day until he goes to bed. Yeah. Um, he jumps out of the chair and he goes running. So I'm like, something's happening. I'm going to follow him and see what's going on. He runs out and D's in the driveway and he bangs on the car on the window and tells him to open the window. 
and D rolls the window down because we didn't have power windows back then. And my grandfather says, why don't you hit somebody who can talk? You bleep. And that was the moment that I realized that maybe there was something mm. that D did that hurt okay. Jacob. It wasn't until that moment that I realized that. But he had been asking my mom to meet him. And he told her the only place he wanted to talk to her was at Jacob's grave. What? Just why? No one knows. I don't know. I mean, the graveyard is very remote. So I'm glad my mom didn't go because I'm worried that he may have wanted to do something to hurt her at that okay. point. Um, but... Even if that wasn't the case, why would you want her to be there? Yeah. Like, that's the last place that she wants to have a conversation about this. Just shows his complete lack of understanding and sensitivity. But yeah, it, it does kind of make sense of why he might want to do that. Mm -hmm. And, oh boy. Uh oh Tornado. Tornado. There we go. Sorry, guys. Another quick interruption there. We just got a bunch of tornado warnings on all of our phones, and it scared us all. <laughs> Hopefully, we're okay. We'll be fine. Yeah, we'll, we'll be fine. And we will podcast through the tornado, people. That is right. That yeah, if you see right. me get ripped out of my chair, you'll know. <laughs> oh, my God. We're stop. becoming Sucked storm out of chasers today. <laughs> Hopefully, someone in the office is, like, looking outside. and We're maybe, fine. I'm not worried. You'll hear maybe tornado Maybe message sirens. the rest of the team. I'm sure they all got it, too. That's true. Okay. Mm. Where were we? Talking about why he would want her to go to the grave site. Yeah. Um, Do you think he was going to confess potentially to your mom? That's what he told her. Mm. But she never went. So we don't really know what he intended to say. Mm. Maybe it was also because he didn't want anyone else to be around to, to hear it if mm. he did or any might you know, anything he might say that would incriminate himself. Yeah. And it wasn't like very common back then to have like an easy way to record someone's conversation. Obviously you could get like a tape recorder. But, yeah, but they're like he's right. that big. Yeah. You can just like have your phone recording in your pocket or right. something like that. So maybe maybe that was part of it. Could have been. So at this point, what were the police doing, if anything, that you're aware of? At the time we didn't really know that they were doing anything. They were investigating. They were interviewing D. They were trying to move him through the process. You know, he had a, a polygraph test that he was scheduled for with the state police. And, you know, there, there was a, I think that was kind of a turning point in the situation because for a long time, my mom, like I said, didn't want to talk to him. Uh, so he says, well, I'm going for this polygraph. So let me prove to you once and for all that I'm innocent. Come with me. You and Eric, come with me. We'll do the polygraph. I'll pass it. You'll see there's nothing happening here. And then maybe you'll give me another chance. So we go. And he goes in. He was in there for a long time. And he comes out super happy. My mom says, how did it go? He said, great, I passed. And we, because it was the 80s, because back then polygraphs actually meant something and were used in court um we believed him because if he would have failed the polygraph they at least in our minds would have kept him there they would have arrested him so we're like obviously he passed he's free he 
had done something, and I don't know if this really happened, but this is what he told my mom. He said that he signed us up for his insurance through the county. And he said that he marked on the forms that my mom and him were married. And so he told her that they had to get married now. Because if not, he was going to go to prison for insurance fraud. And so my mom didn't want to marry him. But also was like, okay, you know, what do we do? It's already happened. So they get married. Wow. Um, and we were all thinking like, okay, it's all settled. It was an accident. Jacob died. It was horrible. Let's move on with our lives. And D changes. He starts to become very controlling. He starts to isolate my mom and I from the rest of the family, from our friends. There is a lot of violence that starts to happen in the house. Um, he starts to lock me in my room for hours and hours at a time. I wasn't allowed to leave. If I needed the bathroom, I had to knock on my own door because there was a lock on the outside. I had to knock on my own door and hope that he could hear me knocking. And then I would ask him if he heard me, if I could go to the bathroom. And if he felt like I didn't need to, then I wasn't allowed to. And I just had to figure it out myself. Wow. I just covered a case this last week about a child in an abusive situation. And same thing, the control over the bathroom that has to be so, so traumatizing. Yeah, it was, you know, it was scary. I never knew. I didn't feel safe. I didn't know what was going to happen. And he never knew with him. Sometimes if my mom was around, I wasn't locked up because mm -hmm. he didn't want her to know that he was doing that to me. So there were times where we would all be sitting in the living room as a family watching TV or something. and suddenly something in his eyes would change and he would look at me and he'd be like, stop giving me dirty looks. God. And so I would look down and like kind of shut down because I knew what was coming. Mm. My mom would ultimately come to my defense and say, he's not giving you dirty looks. He's just looking at you. And then he would start punching her in the face. And you remember seeing all that happen. Wow. So I learned not to make eye contact with him. I learned not to talk, not to ask for anything, not to participate, mm. just kind of hide. I started to sleep with a kitchen knife, wow, a bottle of Aquanet, a lighter, and a baseball bat under my bed. Just anything you could think of to protect yourself. Because I never knew. What was going to happen? Yeah. It was. It was so random. And when he flew off the handle, it was just so violent. He had no control. He was completely out of control. Was there a trigger for him? It could be anything. Wow. It, it literally could be anything. I mean, it could be as much as me just glancing at him or um, asking a question that he doesn't like or my mom wearing something that he doesn't like or my mom talking to somebody at work or he sees her as a waitress waiting on a customer but doesn't like how the guy looked at her so he beats her up 
it was literally anything. There was never any rhyme or reason to it. You couldn't plan on when he was going to lose it. And the thing that set him off today may not set him off tomorrow. So you're just both of you walking on extreme eggshells. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking to myself, hearing you say all this, I'm, and you, you tell me if you think this is an accurate potential motive for him. Because in my head, I'm thinking about how he switched to, you know, before he wasn't physically violent, as far as you know. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, after Jacob dies, it's like a switch is flipped on mm -hmm. for him. Do you feel like perhaps a motive for him to kill? Is that hail? Yeah. yeah. It's, it's hail. It's not going to get picked up. Oh, yeah, that's hail. Let's go look. All right. Yeah. We'll be right back. So, All right, we're back once again. Yeah, here we are. I got some uh, <laughs> hail drippings on me. Josh ran out in the hail and really scared me. It's like big hail. Mm -hmm. it, it was sounds, really loud there for a sec. Maybe yeah. you'll be able to hear it in the recording. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it was coming down really hard. We're yeah. talking like quarter size hail here. Crazy um, so, weather today. Not totally unusual for Colorado, but it's been a while since we've had hail like that yeah. before. So we took a pause to let that pass over. It seems we like... all freaked out and ran to the windows and filmed it, of course. <laughs> Dramatic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I don't, it doesn't sound like it's still happening. So let's jump back into things here. You were making a really good point. I hated yeah. cutting you off, but. Yeah. So to go back to what my point was, because um, in my head, you know, I'm, through this whole episode, I'm just kind of trying to piece together everything, especially with D and his the you know sort of the evolution of of him you know he comes initially it's he's just being verbally abusive and then it evolves after jacob dies and in my head i'm trying to think if he you know and we believe he murdered jacob mm -hmm. why what's the motive behind why he would do that and the more i'm listening to and the more i'm kind of like piecing everything together i'm thinking and and this is I believe common with domestic violence, um, people who, who commit domestic violence and abusers is oftentimes it seems, I mean, it seems like your mother is ultimately what he wants and he wants her all to himself. Mm. And in my mind, I'm thinking, is he looking at you and Jacob as getting in the way of that? Yeah. I think that there is probably a level, level of truth to that, that he wanted complete access to my mom and he wanted he definitely wanted her isolated which he did very successfully <clears throat> so i think that there was probably some level of control or um trying to isolate my mom from everybody who cared about her and you're right we do see that a lot with people who commit domestic violence that that is one means of controlling somebody if they have no support if they have nobody to turn to then you can basically do whatever you want to them without worrying about people finding out who you really are yeah that makes a lot makes a lot of sense and i'm thinking yeah. too of the fact that he's now trying to isolate you as well mm -hmm. by locking you in your room and also creating instilling fear in you mm -hmm. at this point of like you should fear me yeah it's all about that power. Yeah. And prior to that, I was 
playing with all the neighborhood kids. Like I had a lot of friends. I would go over to their houses all the time. You know, we didn't have internet or, or smartphones back then. So we were playing outside and good old days. If I was locked in the room, I couldn't tell the neighbors about what was happening behind closed doors. Right. And we had a state police officer who lived in the same block as us, like within three houses. So he's, so you think that was strategic on his part as well? Absolutely. I was worried that you're, you might say something to somebody. Yeah. I was friends with the state police officer's daughter. We played together all the time. So, Oh, wow. That must've freaked him out. Mm -hmm. Cause it's just like, it's becoming so clear how much of his actions are orchestrated and, and planned out to some extent. Like he's doing things in order to protect himself. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's always been D first, but he's really now, especially trying to make sure that he's kind of keeping his circle tight so that nothing gets out that he doesn't want. Yeah. And we don't know, you know, we didn't know that at the time because we were just living, you know, we didn't suspect that he was doing any of that. We didn't suspect that the marriage was an attempt to convince my mom to do something she didn't want to do. Right, right. In one of your, in I believe in an episode on your podcast, mm-hmm. you mentioned mm-hmm. that Dee might have been stalking other kids, 13-year-old kids potentially. My cousin. Yeah. Um, starts to call my cousin. Um, he starts to leave her notes to try to meet her at the bus stop when she's waiting for the bus. Um, she's 13, I, be, I think, or 14 years old at the time. Um, he is telling her things like, I think you're beautiful. I'm in love with you. Nobody would understand that, so don't tell anybody. Um, I think we should be together. I don't want to be with Brenda anymore. I want to be with you. And my cousin was not who you would consider to be a victim of somebody like that Mm. because she is mouthy and fearless. And she doesn't really know what's going on in our house behind closed doors. So she has no reason to worry about him retaliating against my mom or against me because she doesn't know. She doesn't know anything. So she lets him talk and she's on the phone with him and she's just like, yeah, mm-hmm, whatever. And then as soon as she hangs up, she goes to my grandma and she's like, Hey, this guy's saying this and doing that. And, um, that's how my mom found out that he was trying to groom my cousin. Uh, at the same time, he was sexually abusing me, but my mom didn't know. Nobody knew. He told me that if I ever said anything to anybody, that he would murder me and my mom and nobody would ever find our bodies. Wow. Wow. And I believed him because I saw yeah. Why wouldn't you? what he was capable of. Yeah. I was living it. So you must have just felt like constant terror, fear. Did you feel depressed at that point? No, I don't think I had time to be depressed i was just trying to survive Mm. was he ever intoxicated during this was it like did that ever get worse and worse like or was it just he's just kind of like something in in his head is you know being is triggering and he's just exhibiting this behavior that was potentially always there but he's kind of keeping it under wraps and now he's kind of just bringing it out all the time he's more comfortable being this way well i think with my mom married to him there's Mm. it's not really easy for her to leave at that point 
Um, all of their finances are now tied together um, so he can control the money. Um, he really had full control over everything. So I think that that was part of it. I know that he was using substances. Uh, he admits it in an interview with the police, but I don't remember. Most of the time I was locked away, so I didn't really see what was going on. Um, but I know that he admitted to using substances. Like hard substances? Mm -hmm. And alcohol. Okay. Mm -hmm. So those could have potentially been a factor in sure. his erratic behavior and, yeah. and violence. Okay, interesting. And that's something that really people don't understand is it's so easy for people to say, well, why didn't you leave? Why didn't you just leave? It's so much more complicated than that. There's so many factors at play. Um, obviously, the reasons you just stated, but also just fear of retaliation. Could mm -hmm. this make this all so much worse if I were to leave? Um, obviously, there weren't as many resources available. Not that there's super great resources today, but back then especially. Mm -hmm. People are more educated now. People know that domestic violence exists. And people knew back then, but it was something that you didn't talk about. Mm -hmm. It was something that was not polite conversation to have with mixed company. Uh, it was not something that anybody wanted to be involved in. You know, it was always a case of that's none of my business what's going on over there. So I'm right. going to act like it's not happening. But the statistics show that the chance of a victim of domestic violence getting murdered, it doubles or even triples sometimes when they decide to leave. So that, that's a fact. Mm -hmm. Your chance of dying increases dramatically mm -hmm. just from trying to leave. Yeah, It's not even leaving. Just planning to leave, trying yeah. to leave, having a bag, yeah, having money squirreled away. If anybody finds that, like if he found that, and my mom had that, that would have been it. would have been over. Yeah. He told her all the time, the only way you're leaving me is in a body bag. I've heard that in so many cases too, that threat. So obviously you don't, you want to be safe. Mm -hmm. And so the safe thing to do is stay and just deal with it until yeah. you can find a, a better opportunity to hopefully get some help or when I think my mom in some way she had some guilt mm -hmm. with what happened to Jacob she felt responsible for it um and I think in some way she might have felt like she deserved what was happening to her mm. and I'm not saying that she did I don't think she did I don't believe that but I think that in her mind that's how she felt, that's how she felt. and I think also part of her mentality was if it's only happening to me then I can deal with it. Mm -hmm. She didn't know what was happening to me. And she didn't know what was happening to my cousin until my grandmother told my mom what my cousin said. And that was the impetus for my mom to leave. As soon as she knew that my cousin was being targeted for abuse, that's when she left. And did she plan that out for a little while or try to think? So how did that happen? How did she actually get out? He went to work. And she said, you're not going to school today. Stay home. And she said, we're packing all of our stuff and we're leaving. So we got everything that we could carry with us in a black trash, trash bag and threw it in the back of the truck. We went to my grandparents' house and he went home and found out that we weren't home. Mm -hmm. And he started calling everybody, calling my mom's work, calling my aunt, my grandma, everybody, panicking. My mom answers the phone at my grandma's house and he said, I want to talk to you. And she said, the only place I'm talking to you is in the police station. And there were times prior to you guys leaving that police were called out to the house. 
uh, for incidents and every time there was never charges filed or anything like that. He was never taken to, taken to jail. Yeah, I think it's important to know that, like I said, it's a small town. Everybody knows everybody. He played basketball with the police every weekend. They hung out together. They were all friends. And so they would come out. Either a neighbor would call the police or I would run across the street and call the police or something. And the police would come and they would say, what's going on? He would say, oh, I don't know. She's fucking crazy. Sorry. She's crazy. She just attacked me. I'm just defending myself. And then they would laugh. Ha ha ha. I know how women are. And then they'd leave. The whole good old boys mm-hmm. club type thing. It's sad that it seems police react this way in small towns mm-hmm. over and over and over again in these situations. Yeah. Because I know for a fact that like one of the oftentimes one of the interview questions and one of the the questions that you get tested on in order to become a police officer is, you know, if you were to pull your significant other over or a good friend over, you know, are you going to give them a ticket or not? And the right answer is you treat them like anybody else. It doesn't matter what your relationship, personal relationship is with them. You, if they break the law or if, you know, your friend murders somebody, you go and you arrest them. That's what you're supposed to do. That's doing your job. Yeah. And what we're seeing is that's just not happening. Mm. And there is, there is definitely privilege to those who are buddy, buddy with the police in in most cases, Mm -hmm. especially in small towns, because there is that everybody knows everybody type of thing. And so word gets around and, you know, there's lots of egos, um, in those circumstances. So it's just such a shame because the amount of times that the police could have done something and could have intervened and potentially saved you and your mom from further incidents and violence, but they chose not to because whatever they play basketball with this dude is, is just absurd. It's, it's crazy that this is even real mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that this, and it continues to happen. in in so many cases, it's, it's always the same thing. It's like those who have an in with the police get treated differently than those that don't. And oftentimes those are males, you know, that are, are getting that sort of or treatment and privilege. So mm-hmm. even when there's kids involved, do you think that would drive them as a motive to, to protect? I mean, you had a situation once where you were locked in the dryer mm-hmm. because you used the wrong knife to cut a sandwich. Mm-hmm. I mean, even there's so many situations where something horrible could have happened to you, but that's definitely one of them. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was a terrifying moment. I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know if he was going to turn the dryer on and I was going to die. Like I had no idea what to expect. And I was crying and screaming. And I remember he turned the stereo as loud as it could be wow. just so nobody could hear me. That's, uh, that is terrifying. Mm-hmm. So will you kind of talk about what, what your, what your mom did after leaving D in order to try and get something done, you know, whether it was a restraining order or protection order, you know, obviously you guys are fearing for your life. She went to the DA at one point. Mm -hmm. Will you talk us through that? Yeah. My mom, after we left, she started to really think about Jacob and what happened there. And like I said before, she felt like he wasn't capable of intentionally hurting Jacob. That was where she stood whenever Jacob died. So after we leave and we've had years of 
domestic violence, years of abuse, brainwashing, you know, all the things that happen when you're in that situation, her opinion changed. She now realized, like, he is capable. He is capable of this. He almost killed my mom. And those things changed her opinion. It's like when you're presented with new evidence, you're allowed to change your opinion, right? So she goes to the DA and she says, I, I want you to arrest him. I want you to charge him for Jacob's murder because now I'm convinced that he is responsible. Now I'm 100% certain that this is what happened. And the DA said, we're not going to prosecute him because you gave him an alibi. And what they're talking about is the time my mom said she didn't think he was capable of killing Jacob on purpose. Which isn't an alibi. Yeah, I was just going to say that. Nobody can alibi him. He was the only one there with Jacob. The only way he would have had an alibi is if somebody else was with him and saw what happened. Mm -hmm. That's not the case. But that was the DA's excuse. They also treated her like, why are you making trouble for this poor guy, this upstanding member of the community, oh this God. preacher's kid? Like, you're just an angry wife trying to get revenge on your ex-husband, your poor ex-husband, who doesn't deserve this. That is so irritating. Mm -hmm. So just no help whatsoever. Mm, nothing. They're not going to do anything. And as far as you know, the investigation just tapered off and then they closed the case. They closed the case and we didn't know. They closed That's the case. That's crazy. The they fact didn't even that let they, you know? Your mom had no idea. We didn't find out until 2019, 2020. Wow. Really? So this entire time, you guys thought they're still working on it. They're mm -hmm. investigating it, mm -hmm. hopefully. Yeah. We waited for a new DA to get elected. And we went to that DA. And they said the new excuse was that they could no longer prosecute because of a statute of limitations. Which... I know that there's going to be viewers and listeners like yelling at their TV or yelling into the air that there is no statute of limitations on murder. And in most cases, you're going to be correct about that. But for this case in particular, I believe that the prosecution wanted to bring charges of um, ne neglect and um, negligent homicide. Okay. Second degree murder. Um, not intentionally caused. And in New Mexico, in the 80s, and even before then, and even into the early 2000s, there was a law, there was a statute of limitations on second-degree murder. Um, and I believe it was like eight or ten years. So that time had passed, and they said, we can't do anything about it. Statute of limitations is over. Nothing we can do. And every time there was a new DA, we would go to their office and talk to them and try to try to get them to do the right thing. But we were always met with a different excuse or um, just mostly apathy. We were mostly met with apathy and almost treated like we were making a bigger deal out of the situation than it needed to be. And then in 1990, your mom went 
and asked for Jacob's file mm-hmm. from that DA. Mm-hmm. And you guys actually gave it to you. The whole file. The so whole surprising. file. Mm-hmm. So you guys are like, okay. And then you, you guys looked through it and discovered that D had actually failed his polygraph mm-hmm. um, from prior. And first of all, were you surprised that you actually <laughs> were able to get that? My mom was. My mom, I mean, I was like 10 or 11 when that happened. Um, mm. My mom was surprised. We didn't learn a lot from that case file. Um, I mean, there were some things in there, but there were a lot of things that were not included in that that we found out later in the early 2000s when we had it reopened by the state police. Mm. But we did learn that he had failed the polygraph, which was something that was very shocking to my mom and I because, like I said before, he walked out of the police office like, how does that happen? Um, Yeah, we got that file and... But again, like I said, we just kept getting, we kept hitting roadblock after roadblock. My mom got involved in um, lobbying the state legislature for tougher child abuse laws, tougher penalties for child abuse. Um, after baby Brianna was killed, my mom was up there in Santa Fe, like fighting and trying to get the laws changed. And a lot of laws did change. And I think that's kind of where we both ended up, where we were like, okay, well, if we can't get justice for Jacob, we can at least make sure that nobody else has to go through what we went through. Mm-hmm. Um, and even investigating child abuse cases as well. Mm-hmm. Cause I'm thinking there was obviously a lack of experience when it comes to investigating a case like this. Cause if you, you know, say you're the police officer that rolls up on the scene, yeah. your, you know, your initial reaction is going to be whatever this guy tells you happened, happened, but did they ever secure the scene? Did they ever like do any sort of forensics to see, or try to like piece together what actually happened or alternative scenarios besides what D said of, oh, it was just this accident and he fell. Did they actually like try to see if that's even possible based on what he said? You know, they didn't, sounds like they didn't even like try to corroborate or corroborate his story Mm-mm. based on evidence or forensics yeah. or anything like that. They just took his word for it basically right. and then that was it. And were police even called to the home or was it just paramedics that came initially? Because I assume he called. 911, right? Yeah, I think it was paramedics initially that were taking Jacob to the hospital and then the police got involved in Albuquerque. So it wasn't until he got to the hospital that the doctors were like, mm-hmm. okay. So that's so the paramedics didn't, you know, they're just responding to the medical situation. It's not necessarily their job to, you know, get the police involved, but right. it's it's really unfortunate that they weren't there initially, mm-hmm. that the police weren't there initially. Not not saying that they would have done anything, but Right. They might have seen something that maybe the paramedics would have missed or yeah. or something like that. Have you ever have you ever been able to track down who the paramedics were that responded to to uh that call? No. Cuz I I'd be really interested to hear from them and hear what their initial thoughts were when they when they talked to D. I wonder how much what they, they would remember. Yeah. Yeah, I mean we're talking about almost yeah. 4 decades ago. Right. Yeah. So, going back to the polygraph, do you know what questions were asked? I do. Well, I don't remember off the top of my head verbatim, Mm -hmm. but I know one of the questions was, did you intentionally strike Jacob in the head area? And there was another one. I think if they asked if he had struck Jacob in the back or on the bottom intentionally. Did did you get to see his answers to that? He said no, but those were, I think those were the two that were proven and I might be wrong, but those were the, I definitely know the one about if he intentionally hit intentionally hit Jacob on the head area. That one he failed. He said no, and it was shown to 
have been the deceptive answer. Now, obviously, a failed polygraph test isn't enough to actually bring charges against someone, mm -hmm. of course. But it don't do you feel like it should have at least made him a person of interest? Absolutely. I think when you couple that with a bunch of the other information that we learned later on, um, when you take that into totality with his history and the domestic violence and the sexual abuse and all the other things that happened, I think that it starts to be very telling that he probably was being deceptive. Mm -hmm. uh, whether polygraphs are reliable or not, mm -hmm. looking at everything in totality, it does paint a pretty clear picture to me. And I know that I have somewhat of a biased opinion because I've seen this man be violent yeah. and all of those things, but you know, it's a I'm fact. trying to be objective. Right. You know? Yeah. I would agree with you. Mm -hmm. So moving forward, yeah. did Dee continue to stalk and harass your family over the years? Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. He would follow us around town. Um, in his car and he would tailgate us and act like he was going to hit us. He would come to my window at night and knock on my window and say that he was going to fucking kill me. God, it's been so scary. Yeah, it was. He would leave notes on my mom's car. He would call her work all the time. He would call our house. Um, we had to get an order of protection against him. Was that granted? Mm -hmm. So after that, did he continue? Mm -hmm. That's the thing is, it doesn't know, do anything. It doesn't do anything. No, my mom did everything. She didn't do everything right, right away. But when she left, she did everything the right way. She went to the police. Mm -hmm. She got an order of protection. Was there, what, do you remember what the stipulations of the protection order were? Like he had to stay so many feet away or? Yeah, I think it was less than a hundred feet. Okay. It couldn't be like more than 100 or 200 feet with, within proximity of us. Um, he wasn't supposed to contact us. He wasn't supposed to be near us, following us, calling us, but he still did. Yeah. Did you guys he doesn't get give a police damn involved? Because he knows, well, he knows the police aren't going to do anything. That's, yeah. at the so end the police the day, just literally not did nothing. We would call the police and say that somebody was in the yard and telling us they were going to kill us and they would look around, say nobody's here and they would leave. Wow. So he'd always just like find a way to get out of there mm -hmm. before they could get there and catch him, I guess. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's like, what do you do? Like, what else can you possibly do at that point? And there are thousands and thousands of people facing that question every day of what do I do? The police won't do anything. I have the order of protection. There's still threats. They're still coming to my house, mm -hmm. breaking the protection order and nothing is being done. So at that point, what are your options? Try to protect yourself as best you can, record everything, keep track of everything that's going on, and hope that one day someone helps. My mom documented everything. And because of that, she was granted an annulment on the marriage, not a divorce. Really? Mm -hmm. An annulment, okay. So will you, will you explain the difference, just for people that don't understand? I don't know if I understand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of complicated. An annulment is... Th that's through the church, correct? I believe it was through the court, or no, is it through yeah, the court? It's it's like basically saying the marriage never happened. Didn't happen. Essentially, oh yeah. right, 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 right. That's the difference with it. Yeah. Um, interesting. I wonder. So that was a better case scenario for her, mm -hmm. correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm, okay. Yeah, that's what the difference is. Mm -hmm. One's a, one validates that the marriage is real, divorce, and then 
annulment means. It was never a valid marriage. Okay. I'm surprised they actually allowed that. Me too. I think there's a stipulation through, I think, the Catholic Church or something with annulment. Like, you have to have an annulment or something versus, it can't be divorced because divorce is against, yeah. Okay. That's what I was thinking of. Yeah. And that wasn't part of her reasoning, but. So, eventually in 2005, your mom decided it was time to try and get Jacob's case opened again. And what really drove her to that point to want to try and get that done? I think we started to hear rumors about the statute of limitations being overturned. Mm. And so my mom was like, oh, this is our chance. So she went to, she had started making connections with people in the legislature as she was doing all the advocacy work that she was doing. And um, somebody told her to call the state police, the cold case unit. So she wrote a letter and asked for help. She said, you know, my, my son's case has never been solved. It's never been worked. Can you guys look at it? And so they immediately assigned it to a detective Detective Christian, and I'm forever grateful to him. He he did a really thorough job. I mean, he looked at all the evidence. He talked to everybody involved. He really did his due diligence and prepared this incredible case file, which we didn't get right away. I didn't get that until 2019, I think. Um, and it was really interesting because he has a final opinion in that document and he says that it's very clear to him that Jacob died one way it was not the four ways that D claimed Jacob died there was no way that any of those stories would have resulted in the injuries that Jacob sustained mm-hmm. and that it's more likely that Jacob was hit in the head by the open palm of an adult male hand on the top of his head mm-hmm. repeatedly So he said, I feel that there's sufficient evidence, sufficient cause to prosecute this person for Jacob's death. He did say that he thought it would have to be second degree murder, probably negligently caused just because they can't prove premeditation. It's not premeditation in New Mexico. It's intent. Oh, okay. Which is very different. Right. You have to prove that somebody intended to to cause harm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And how do you prove that? How do you prove their mindset at the time 30-something years later? You can't. Especially when no one was around to see. Right. Um, so he sent it to the DA. And the DA sent a letter back to him and said that we were not going to be pursuing charges because of the statute of limitations. And then the case was closed. But we were not told that. We were not told that it was closed. Um. So we, we felt hopeless at that point. We thought that was it. It was over. Is that the, is that a previous DA that did that? Or is that the current DA? Previous DA. Previous DA. Yeah. And then the law changed. Like I said, we had heard rumors that that was going to change. The statute of limitations went away. And there was a Supreme Court case that went through New Mexico of a murder that would have been under that statute of limitations. And they appealed it. They appealed the ruling. And because of the law changing, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of of the family that were fighting for justice and said that the case could be tried, even though the statute of limitations had passed, which set precedence for cases going back into the 90s and the 80s to be able to be prosecuted. 
So Jacob's case, Jacob's case should be able to be prosecuted then. Yeah. Based on this ruling. Mm -hmm. So that's, so really that's kind of where we're at today, right? Is like, we're trying to get them to prosecute this case. Yeah. Yeah. So what happened right recently, so I got the case file and I started actively trying to advocate uh, for Jacob's case. I reached out to, to you, Kendall um, to be on your show and you know I was trying to get anybody who would talk about Jacob's case to do it because I was inspired by Sarah Turney watching her and her push for media coverage and I'm like I need to do that I need to do what she's doing because it's it seems to be working for her yeah and so, it did it did <laughs> it did work for her um so I got the case file and I read through it and I learned a lot I learned about the fact that the case was closed which that was a good couple of weeks of me just like losing it. No, I'm sure. I was so mad. Uh, I felt so betrayed. You know, we, we grow up and we're taught in school that if you do something wrong, you're going to get caught and you're going to pay for it. And we protect our most vulnerable citizens. Like that's what we're taught. It's drilled into our heads. Mm-hmm. And that's not what happens nope. a lot of times. And that's not what happened with Jacob's case, you know the person responsible was able to live his life and hurt other people. But what I learned was, like you said, he failed the polygraph. I also learned that he confessed, um, which is not something that we knew. Now, where people get super excited about that, there's no recording of the confession. There's no transcript. There's no signed affidavit. There's nothing that indicates what he said or what conditions that confession was given under. So I don't know. I don't know what, what happened. I don't know where the confession is. The uh, cold case investigator for the state police had no idea either. He couldn't find it either. But we learned he confessed. We learned he failed the polygraph. And... Those were the big, I think, bombshells that really shook my mom and I. So who who told, was it this uh, state investigator that came up with that he confessed? Or was that in the case file? It was in the case file. So it was, so who recorded that then? Was it the local police then? Yeah. So there's a note from one of the police officers in a supplemental report that says, we were getting ready to take D in for a polygraph. And so-and-so officer came into my office and said a polygraph is no longer necessary because he confessed that's all it says to what yeah that's all it says Ugh. so we have no idea what he confessed to he could have confessed to i stole a candy bar from the right. 7-eleven or something i mean we don't know right. obviously we're thinking it's likely more than that but mm-hmm. we don't know it's just crazy that they wouldn't record like why wouldn't you record more there it's like mind-blowing so because in my head i'm like did they really get a confession of murder from him and didn't do anything with it or was it something else unrelated so they felt like they didn't need to but it's weird the wording is weird right why would they cancel a polygraph right based on some random confession that has nothing to do with the case yeah clearly it did or was it confessing to domestic violence only this was before that so no, it could have been. Yeah, it was. It was before all of that. Wow. So based on that, it 
must have been to Jacob's death. Yeah. Hmm. But it's hard to say what he said. And I'm not saying they didn't record it. I'm just saying we don't have it. So maybe so they did well and it just got there. lost or... Or they're keeping it. Or something else happened. Or he got a hold of it, you think? I don't know that. I can't prove that, but I can tell you he had the keys to every office in the county, including the DA's office. Wow. So it's yeah, not out of the realm of possibility. But, but ba based on the mind. access that he had, yeah. mm -hmm. anything is possible. Mm -hmm. Wow. So you also found out that Jacob's cause of death was listed as homicide by child abuse. Yeah. And that was new information to you guys as well. Mm -hmm. um, also, the autopsy report. Yeah. And there weren't any crime scene or autopsy photos. There's autopsy photos. Oh, there were. Yeah, there is in the case file. Is that something that you have seen? I didn't know they were there. Wow. I'm so sorry you had to see that. Yeah. But there's no photos before the autopsy, right? Mm -mm. Hmm. At least not in the pile. Okay. So really, at the end of the day, after the cold case, and the cold case investigator sounds like he did the most thorough job he investigating did. this case out of everybody. And Are he's, you still and in contact with him? No. He retired, so okay. I'm not sure where he is. Mm. I mean, it, it probably felt good to at least be validated after after getting that report from him, I can imagine. It, it did. I mean, it felt good to know that at least somebody else saw what, what we you're saw. Saying, yeah. Yeah. And it did. It, it felt good. But it, at the same time, like 2005, nothing happened still. Mm. And it seems like all the evidence we just went over would be enough to press charges, mm -hmm. I would say. Do you think so? I think so. But I think what maybe a lot of people don't know about prosecutors and the way those offices work at least in New Mexico, is they have autonomy. They get to decide what cases they bring charges on. And there's no real regulation on that. And what I've learned and what I found is that a lot of times prosecutors will try a case in their mind and decide if they feel like they can win. And that That's what it comes down is to the determining them. factor on whether they will prosecute or not. And I've been told this by multiple prosecutors who have said, well, I wouldn't try it because we can't prove that it was the second injury that killed Jacob. We can't prove that the second injury didn't make the first injury worse. And with all the doubt that's cast around your involvement in it, we can't prove that it was definitively him. Like, we can't say that for sure, so we can't win, so we're not going to prosecute. Not even going to try. How wouldn't you be able to say that for sure? You weren't even in the state. They wouldn't be able to. Well, they're saying like from a previous injury, right? Oh, perhaps, okay. I see. That what you're that saying. could have been a factor in what caused him to wow, die. That right. Is so that's ridiculous. Yeah. So, and the the cold case investigator had confidence mm -hmm. that you guys would be able to press charges. Yeah. You know, it would be a strong, winnable case. He said that. That they have load of loads of evidence, so he presents it to the DA, and they just say, "Nope, nope," and it's closed. And and I think you've been kind of alluding to this throughout the episode, but mm -hmm. Dee's connection to the county might be a factor in this and to why they don't necessarily want to, in their words, kind of take a gamble on this case mm -hmm. because 
of you know they might be violating his right to a speedy trial and you know it could end up in a lawsuit yeah. and i mean obviously that's last one, thing they want one da did say that like he was worried about being sued <laughs> from d which i'm like yeah what so are they ever like <laughs> but jacob like does that ever come out of their mouth like what about this what about the baby young kid who had a whole life ahead of him that was mm-hmm. completely robbed by somebody uh, the fact that that's not at the forefront of their their minds is crazy and you wonder why these people get into the profession that they do when they don't care mm-hmm. i think i think some i mean not that every prosecutor out there is thinks this way there are some some good ones out there who do want to make a difference yeah. care about victims and do a good job i think i think it's the bigger it's a bigger systemic issue yeah. and it's a culture that's been propagated in these these places for years and years and years that like you know you might be this young gun prosecutor wants to get in there and like i'm going to try everything under the sun and really make a difference here but then they get in there and realize it, there's a ripple effect right mm-hmm. like and there's it's the dominoes right dominoes will fall if one person goes outside of the norm and so it's it's all political i mean it's all political bullshit at the end of the day yeah. um, why they don't want to do that and it's sad because it's at the expense of families and their loved ones and those who have ultimately been murdered and the murderers that still get to run around and live their lives it's crazy it's just it's like the it's like one of the hardest things to process about all this is just and i can't even imagine being in your shoes and i would just be angry all the time i'd be i just want to like go in there and shake the da up and down and be like what are you doing dude like why what what are you waiting for Mm -hmm. there's there's clearly enough here to at least try to get do something i mean there's got to be something else i mean at this point and like like you said at the beginning what does justice look like for for you and your mom and there is nothing that's going to bring jacob back but accountability would be nice and for him to be held accountable for what he did in some way i mean even if it was something lesser than second degree murder manslaughter or negligible homicide you know something child abuse child neglect something i believe the state of new mexico is culpable for any victims that this man had after yeah after what happened to us are there any victims that you know of not that i can prove you have some like theories i have some rumors and things that i've heard but well look at his cousin yeah so he's done that once chances are he's doing this elsewhere and and all i mean it seems like this is just kind of who he is and it's been going on a long time and i would never out another victim that you Mm -hmm. know just because it's not my place to tell their story or their trauma but but anybody who else anybody else who suffered because of him i feel like the state's responsible for that and we you know like i said we felt like we were going to give up after the cold case investigation because it just felt like hopeless but as I started to start my show, my podcast and helping other families, I, I felt like a hypocrite, you know, I'm asking these people to give a story of the worst day of their life. And yes, I'm trying to help them, but I'm not willing to do the same thing. You know, when I'm telling a family member, like you can't ignore these problems away. If you want them to change, you have to talk about it. But here I am unwilling to talk about it. And 
And I don't say that to shame anybody who's not ready to talk about their trauma. Like that's not, not what that's about. This was all about me and what was going on inside of me. Right. But I realized like I was, I was being hypocritical. And so if I expected things to change, I had to be willing to talk about this. And so I called my mom and I said, Hey, I have a crazy idea. I'm wondering it might help. I don't know. It might not help, but let's, let's try it. What do you think? And she said, okay, she wanted to be on the show. And we talked about the case and it inspired me and motivated me to keep fighting. I started digging deeper and asking more questions and um, getting connected with other people. And, and that's when I realized like, oh, I can, I might be able to do something with this. And we started kind of devising a plan on how we would try to get the DA to do the right thing. So I came on your show. I went on Sarah Turney's show. I went on a bunch of other shows trying to get more coverage for Jacob and decided to do uh, a campaign to call the DA and to email the DA and write the DA. And thank you again. And thank you to the viewers and, and listeners that helped with that because that made a huge impact. And I just want to say that for people that are watching or listening, like you may think that some of these things don't make a difference, but they really, really do. Um, we felt it. We felt the love. We felt the support for the first time in 30 years. We felt like somebody was listening. Somebody cared. And the goal was to call and email and write the DA every day for 10 days from the 1st of April until the 10th. And the DA lasted two days. Yeah. Which made me really happy uh, because it meant that they were getting bombarded. Mm-hmm. And when that happens, they, they, most of the time they cave pretty quick. Yeah, he did. And he sent an email to myself and to the attorney general. And he said, um, I'm not going to prosecute this case. I can't do it. I don't have the resources. I don't have the staff. It was COVID. And so he said, I'm giving it to you, to the attorney general. He turned it over, which was the only way the attorney general could get involved um, because there's jurisdiction issues. Right. Um, he can't step on his toes. So the case was handed over, I think, two years ago to the attorney general and they reopened it. So as of today, it is open. And that was a huge, huge win. We had a call with the attorney general and some prosecutors and Hector Balderas, who was the AG at the time, apologized to my mom and I. He said that the state of New Mexico failed us. That was huge. Must have been really gratifying, like, you know. Accountability. I mean, there's some account. If there's been none, so this is something to hear that we, we, we mess this up. I mean, we were gaslit for so long and treated like we were crazy and treated like we were making a bigger deal about this than it was. So to finally get that, it meant a lot. It doesn't do anything to change what happened. It doesn't change how I feel about the situation, but it's like validation. Mm-hmm. When you're gaslit, you start to question yeah. everything about yourself. Yeah, And I remember asking my mom like are we crazy are we the crazy ones yeah why are we the only ones that are freaking out about this why are we the only ones that care that a baby's dead like how is that 
how's that even real? I think most people can't even imagine like being like what that would really be like to feel like no one is listening to you. And you know, this goes back to how important it is to take those extra steps if you are someone who can consumes true crime and if there's a calling campaign or an email campaign to take that step because it really does make a difference and you don't always hear about it like mm-hmm. you know people will do that and then they expect a quick turnaround and sometimes there's some movement pretty fast but sometimes you can't talk about it right away yeah. and there's things happening behind the scenes and these things take time it's a long journey we were just discussing that earlier together but you know these these things really help and just it's amazing to hear what a huge difference that that made for you that people in this community were able to stand beside you guys and to get them to listen. And I, I always say the, you know, the idea of power of the people or power to the people is so true. And that when you get enough people behind you, that sometimes that's really what it takes Mm -hmm. for people to listen. Yeah. Make it politically unpopular for them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's power in numbers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There truly is, especially when it comes to, our, our government and the, the legal system. It's like having that support behind you really does matter. You know, they have to take you a little bit more seriously when you've got numbers behind you than yeah. if it's just you on your own. Right. Mm-hmm. So what it, so right now, what has, what has the AG asked from you guys? <laughs> like I'm sure. Oh uh, yeah. Blah. So we've been asked to collect evidence for the case. That's so right, investigate people. for That's, them. So they don't have an investigator assigned to this? They or? do, but they told us in not so nice terms that it's our case. And if we care about it, you got to keep. we'll it going. do something to help it. I think that'll be shocking for a lot of people to hear. They're asking the family to collect evidence for them to do their job that they're paid to do. They're elected to do. Yes. Yeah, not only paid, but elected as well. Yeah, the AG's office is up there too. That's incredibly frustrating. Mm-hmm. So that's, which leads us to why, obviously, you're you're not an investigator. You know, it's a lot of work and there's expertise behind doing that properly in a way that can actually be admissible in court and things like that. Yeah. So that's where having a licensed private investigator really comes in handy is that they can do a lot of that for you, a lot of that legwork and it sounds like you almost need, it's just crazy to me that they're not looking at this state police cold case investigator already did basically what they're now asking you to do and just picking up where he left off and using their own resources to take it to the finish line. What, what that I assume they have the state police's report and everything. So they they still want more More from you guys. Have they outlined specifics with you on what they need? Mm -hmm. Okay. Not that you need to talk about that, obviously, but... Do you feel it's out of laziness or do you feel they're hoping you guys won't actually do it and they don't, you know, it creates less work for them in the end? (laughs) Or why do you think that is? I I wish I could tell you. I don't know. It it, When I got off the phone with my my mom and I were on the phone and I called her back. I'm like, mom, I don't feel good about this. Like, why are they asking us to collect evidence for them when the state is the one who messed it up in the first place. The reason yeah. we're missing evidence is because of the state. So, and also, I'm not really sure that it makes sense for us to do that. Like, the chances of us doing something wrong right. and jeopardizing the evidence that they want 
Like, how is that going to help? Is it possible that's what they're hoping for? Anything's possible. I mean, I honestly, I've given up trying to understand the motivation yeah. behind the state and sure. why they do the things that they do. Um, it's drive you nuts. It just drives me crazy. Yeah. yeah, I can't make sense out of crazy. No, not so true. So that's why it's so important that we have a private investigator get involved in this case and, you know, why we are asking for donations today. Um, any amount, it all will make a significant difference. At least we really hope so. Yeah. Um, and thank you in advance to um, our kind viewers who I know will, will take that step and do that. So let's talk about D today. Mm. Where, well, I guess you, you don't know where he is. Yeah. So we found out as soon as I announced that the case was reopened, he moved away. He abandoned his house and nobody knows where he is. And this is coming from sources within his family. Wow. They've even told you. Mm -hmm. So you've been in contact with his family. My mom. Have they been like friendly? Yeah. Okay. That's, that's good at least, but they don't even know. Mm -mm. Wow. That, that says a lot. Which is another reason we want the PI because we want to know where he's at, yeah, where he so is. They can help with that for sure. In case charges are brought, we can tell the police, hey, here he is. And he, he's been remarried since as well, mm -hmm. too. Does he have any record? He has zero what? record, which is alarming for a number of reasons. There's no way he stopped being abusive. No, of course not. So why is there no record? When is the last time that he contacted your family? Mm, a few years ago, he was driving in front of my mom's house repeatedly. Right. But that's pretty much it. And she didn't, did she, there was no contact made. She just saw him doing mm -hmm. it. Did she call you or try to, mm -hmm. that, that must have really freaked you out. Yeah. Do you think he was doing that to intimidate her? A hundred percent. Yeah. Obviously, the answer to this is very obvious, but I want to, just for the record, who do you and your family think killed Jacob? D. Do you, and you feel that it was most likely continuous blunt force trauma with yeah. his hand? Yeah. I think that he was hitting Jacob any chance he got. Mm -hmm. Which would explain all the other injuries as well. Mm -hmm. The ribs, injuries on his buttocks. There is other head injuries as well. Mm -hmm. God. And then obviously, I mean, looking back and, you know, remembering and seeing everything that your mom went through physically, I mean, it's not out of the realm of yeah. possibility at all yeah. that he would do that. I think something we didn't really talk about and we don't have to go backwards on this, but one thing that I've learned through educating myself about domestic violence and child abuse and all these things is, Strangulation is the number one indicator for lethality when it comes to domestic violence. So anytime a perpetrator strangles somebody, it's a really good chance that they have the ability to murder somebody. And he did that to my mom. So I think that that is another thing that maybe a lot of people may not know. Yeah. He's definitely capable of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Well, and I'm just thinking back to some of the, you know, doing a little bit of research on 
signs of a child who's being abused physically with the the illness and not eating and and all the different things that your mom was starting to notice i mean it seems pretty pretty obvious that he was clearly physically abusing jacob and maybe he just took it too far and maybe he accidentally you know he wasn't planning to kill him Mm -hmm. and that's just what happened and he freaked out or he did or he just was planning to kill him i mean yeah that's possible too we may never know but i mean it doesn't change change what happened at all no i'm just so glad that you and your mom made it out you know there were so many instances where it could have been different and we're lucky to have you guys here today um if there are there any other recent updates to the case that you want people to know about um current status of the case or anything that you met that we missed in recording today that you want to make sure we clarify Mm, we didn't miss anything the case is open now it's being investigated um it's not close to prosecution because we still have some evidence we have to gather um but i'm hopeful i have hope for the first time in 36 years that we'll see something happen um it's not going to be on my timeline obviously because it never has been so I'm just trying to continue plugging forward, continue keeping Jacob's name out there, keeping him in the front of of everyone's minds so that he doesn't get forgotten and the case can't be ignored. I feel hopeful too. And to be honest, that wasn't something I could have said a few years ago. Yeah. I just thought it had been so long and there were so many failures and you guys are just continually let down that I just, I didn't have that hope. I didn't either. But now I do. Yeah. I think there there's a real possibility we could see some sort of justice here. Mm-hmm. And I really, really hope that happens. Thank you. And all of you can be a part of that um, by taking those steps that we talked about. We will have all of that listed more clearly, like an action plan in our description box or show notes, um, as well as on social media. Um, for you, you know, it's a great opportunity to be an active true crime consumer and, and take an action that might lead to, to justice in the end for, um, Jacob and for their whole family. So, you know, you have more power than you think. And I really plead you to, to take some type of step, um, even if it's just signing the petition. Eric. Thank you so much for being here today. I know this was not easy for you, um, but it has been wonderful to get to meet you in person and spend time with you. And you were just so well-spoken. I love that you have taken all of this pain and trauma that you've been through and have turned it into power and you're helping others. Um, Your podcast is wonderful. You guys definitely need to check it out. Um, Eric's fantastic. Where can they follow you on social media? Twitter, it's True Cons Pod. On Instagram and Facebook, it's True Consequences Pod. Okay. You're well, an inspiration, man. Yeah. I just got to say, like, you are. I, I can't say that if I was in, if I was in your situation or shoes, if that I would be doing what you're doing. I feel, I don't know. I feel like it'd be very hard to get over the the anger, and I mean, sometimes recording these episodes, when especially you start talking about the failings of of the system, and it's just my blood boils. I'm just like, what are these people doing? Mm-hmm. And know? we're just researching it and, and learning. Yeah. About it. I, I, mean, I don't even don't, have to interact with them on a it. you know day-to-day basis or, yeah. you know, have phone calls with them. But I just, 
it, it blows my mind that, that the state of everything is the way that it is and mm-hmm. and i think the only way that it will change is by more people being aware of the injustices that are out there and i, I think what's great is that you've taken a tragedy and injustice that's happened to you and your family and you're you know not only fighting for you know your own case but you're out there fighting for others now and using what you've learned in the process to help others out there and i think that is extremely commendable and mm-hmm. and you know not a lot you know not a lot of people are willing are willing to do that and especially after they've been through what you've been through and mm-hmm. you know just raising awareness around especially your own state where you live and you know the fact that child abuse is extremely happening at an extremely high rate with no action being taken mm-hmm. and bringing to light some of those those bigger underlying issues yeah. in your community i think is is amazing stuff so keep it up we're here to support you and everybody out there listening watching is out there to support you as well so thank you we'll make sure everything's linked below for you guys but thanks again for joining us today eric it's been an absolute pleasure but uh that is that is it for us today we'll go ahead and wrap up things there but yeah make sure you check out eric's podcast true consequences and make sure you show him love in the comments as well as on social media we really appreciate it guys but we will see you guys next week until then keep on taking your mind a mile higher